Horror in the House of Salons, here to save the day. Vamps and zombies, ghosts and werewolves, make them go away. Let's talk about your favorite movies, have some laughs and fun. Then when you're scared of deep, dark shadows, you won't need to run. Morning is coming, there's nothing more to fear. You can come out to play. Brian and Jamie, remember, are always here. And that's all there is to say. and welcome to episode 17 of Horror in the House of Salmons. I am Jamie, and with me as always is Brian. Hello. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing okay. Seems like I keep saying this every time we record, but the weather's finally getting nice. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps going back to shit, but it's at least nice today. Yeah. Although I think I saw tomorrow or the next day, it's supposed to be back down to 40. It was 35 degrees this morning, yeah. and I went out at 9 a.m., so... Now, granted, uh, last week it was like 70 early in the morning, so this weather's all schizophrenic. Yeah. Although I don't get to do much going out these days. Why is that? Because <laughs> I have COVID. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. I get to go back to work on Monday, and I really... I didn't end up missing all that much work, because by the time I found out what it was you know it was kind of already into the quarantine period and yeah it doesn't look like anyone at work has been infected but yeah and i don't even know i have no idea where it came from but all i know is that i was really sick on monday and tuesday was the worst day and then i've been getting better ever since and i honestly didn't even know that's what it was but i mean Hell, I'm, you know, fully vaccinated and boosted and yeah. it's doing its job, you know. Um, well, I gotta say, and knock on wood, <laughs> I haven't gotten it yet. Yeah, which is pretty good because, I mean, we're always, like, yes. around you. I mean, well, we're married. Yeah. You know, we're together all the time. And I'm really glad that no, it, it hasn't affected you. At least they always said the the old COVIDs always took a little while to incubate and all yeah. that. So I might get it. <laughs> I'm hoping not. Because I'm pretty sure I had COVID ooh, a couple months back. And it wasn't deadly or dangerous or anything. It just sucked. I don't want to do that again, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it has sucked and... I will tell you, um... And I will say it wasn't deadly or dangerous because I'm vaccinated, so... Yeah. Get vaxxed, people. Don't worry about the microchips. Mine hasn't bothered me. <laughs> you barely even know it's there. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I was, uh, Dave had COVID a while back, and he would talk about, on his show, he talked about his brain fog a mm. lot. And that's a thing. It's yeah. a real thing. I were <laughs> Before I knew what it was that I was dealing with, I just thought I had a, a really bad cold. But I had the hardest time trying to... I couldn't... When I, I couldn't work. I, I couldn't... It's like my brain couldn't process things or put things together right. And everything was was a struggle. The simplest task was a struggle for me to try to figure out what the hell I was doing. But 
Anyway, you you can still hear it in my voice, so I wanted to just tell everybody what's up just because that's why I sound like I sound, but I'm fine. I'm I'm okay. Speaking of Dave, we went on Did we talk about that on the last show? Yeah, I can't remember. You might as well I mention can't either, it. Now. But we went on exploding heads again. I I can't remember if we had done it the second time when we recorded the last episode, but uh, we went on two weeks in a row. Because we are awesome. Uh, with um, They were begging us, please come back. <laughs> please. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, spending time with Dave and Christian was great. And we had a lot of fun. Yeah. They're good The dudes. second episode we went on was just pure bullshit episode. We didn't do any reviews. We just and talked hey, about... hey, I'm good at bullshitting. Yeah, we talked about movies, though. We talked about a lot of slashers and stuff like that. And um, then we just talked about whatever. I, we had, you know, a good time. So I love those guys. Uh, shout out to them. And, oh, God, I'm still... Foggy? I'm still foggy. Like, I... I so forgive me if I lose my train of thought while we're doing this i'm i'm trying i'm working <laughs> but i feel like i had something else i was gonna say and now i don't know what it was oh uh for patrons out there if you haven't seen it the first course of the texas chainsaw match <laughs> the first course of the texas chainsaw massacre retrospective has dropped on patreon and the second course will be coming out soon first course i like that yeah well you know i try to be clever Mm -hmm. um in the first one we did parts one and two and then in the second one which will be coming out um hopefully this weekend will be uh three and four then we'll do the remake and the prequel then the final show will be 3d and leatherface and of course we've already did an independent um done an independent review of the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is already on Patreon, so. Yeah, originally we were just going to do two shows, you know, break up the movies. Right. In half. But it was so long. Yeah, we kind of run on. Well, because we talk about <laughs> And there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Everything, and pretty much walk it through virtually scene by scene. But, you know, we talk about a lot of theories and things that people have said over the years and which when it's a movie or movies that i really like i have no problem running my mouth about them at length yeah some of those later movies (laughs) it's gonna get hard for me to uh, give a damn well even with um four yeah that did surprise me we you know managed to squeeze a lot out of that so it was cool for this episode uh it's easter weekend of course. So, uh, the Bumps in the Night segment is inspired by Easter. We'll Yay. put it that way. <laughs> oh, I know what. Why don't you talk about new book? Okay, yeah, I guess I will. Right now, there is a Kickstarter going on for the newest book I edited for Golden Goblin Press uh, with Oscar Rios, uh, the owner of the press and longtime collaborator with me on these various books. And this one is called Horror on Holiday. And it's all about, you know, people taking vacations and all that because after these last couple years, everybody can use a vacation. But it's what happens when the vacations go wrong. Is this mythos-based? Yes. So, specifically, 
I mean, in general terms, it is a anthology of horror stories, but specifically, a lot of them have mythos connections to varying degrees. Some are very heavily influenced by Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos. Some are only lightly influenced by them. Uh, case in point, my story, which is a really, really weird story. I put one of my stories in here. It's based off a dream I had, and it might be the strangest thing I ever wrote. <laughs> and it has some connections to Lovecraft and what he's done, of course, because I, you know, I love all that. But it has a lot more than that. It's almost, it's a very surreal story, because naturally, because it came from a dream. If you're interested in this, you're interested in seeing what I do, you're interested in reading what I write, or just you like the Cthulhu mythos, Lovecraft. Um, or horror in general. Horror really. in general. Hell, vacations. <laughs> then uh, please give it a look. Uh, just go to Kickstarter and look up Horror on Holiday. Now this Kickstarter is serving as a pre-order? It's kind of a both. It's kind of a, a finishing... Thing. It's what Kickstarter is meant to do, give the publisher, because Golden Goblin Press is basically one guy, he does a lot of work by himself, I work with him, but he oversees 99% of everything that's going on, so small presses need your support to get the books out. It's a lot to ask them to just blindly, in good faith, invest in something and put it out there, because you never know. Especially with the markets recently, they've been mm -hmm. kind of volatile. Yeah, so Kickstarter allows them to sort of get the money up front for the... Yes. Because there are yeah, people who will buy the book, so they're just buying it ahead of time. And exactly. then that way it allows the publisher to use that money to enhance what they'd be able to do on their own. Well, yeah. It takes a lot of money to bring books out, to, to print. That's one thing. Uh, this will always... All my books will always be in print, in actual dead tree format on paper. But there's also ebooks and all that stuff too that you can get in addition to or instead of. But all that stuff, it takes a lot of money. And you gotta pay the editors, like me. You gotta pay the authors, also like me, but the other people in it. You gotta pay for the cover. You gotta pay someone to proofread it and find all the mistakes because editors do that job too, but you can never have too many I's on a manuscript to hopefully make sure you dot the I's and cross the T's. Well, and to be fair, when you're doing your portion of the editing, you're looking for totally different things. Yes. You know, I mean, you are paying attention to that, but your main focus is the story itself. Yeah, there's different types of editors. I am usually what you would call a story editor. I work with the authors to get the story to feel and read like what's in my head. When I do a book, I have a vision for it, and I work with them to make sure everything falls in line. Now, I do some copy editing along the way, or if I see some mistakes or whatever, I'll fix them, of course, but copy editing is its own thing. And these are people who are just specifically looking for the boo-boos, the mistakes, and all that. Yeah, I've done that, and that's... It's tough. It's a, it's a hard job. Yeah. And it's a thankless job, and it can often be a very boring job. Yeah. Because when you're reading for something like that, you don't even really get to enjoy the story. You're so focused on, yeah. are the commas in the right place? 
does this need to be a semicolon? And is see, it, yeah. that is the difference between a copy editor and a story editor, because mostly, I'm mostly interested and worried about and concerned about the story, how it flows, how, you know, it tells the story it wants to tell. Copy editors, my hats are always off to them. That is a really tough job. And if you find a good one, then you're blessed and you stick with them. So, uh... Gotta tell you, it's not something I would want to do as a profession. I know. Like a a full-time profession. It's one of those things I do as the editor of the anthology, but I'm not saying I'm all that great at it. I do the best I can, but I always want a real copy editor. Because by the time this book is done, I've probably read all the stories in it four or five times. Right. And after that, you start getting blind to certain things. Mm -hmm. So you need a fresh pair of eyes who've never, they've never read or even seen anything in the book, and all they're interested in is the, the technical aspect, the mistakes. They don't care about the story or the characters or the flow or the plot or the length or anything like that. They're just to make sure they get the technicals as correct as possible. Have you released the TOC for this one? Is it listed on the Kickstarter? I'm just curious. I don't... This is... I usually know... What's going on with your projects? But this one I know very little about. Well, I mean, there's been a bunch of stuff going on in our lives. So while you were handling your own stuff in the insurance world, you know, I just went ahead and did this. But yeah, uh, the table of contents. Uh, there is a story by Glenn Owen Barris. He's a good friend of mine and probably the person I collaborate with the most. And if you know me, you know how picky in particular I am. So that should tell you how good he is. Because I'm not going to put my name with somebody that's going to bring me down. No, Glenn is not only a great guy, and he really is. He's just super guy. But he is a prolific writer. Yes. And he gets published quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. He's a very good writer. And we've also edited, co-edited a bunch of anthologies together. Yeah. We're working on one right now. We have ideas for more to come in the future. Uh, So, yeah, I love the guy to death. Uh, He's from the UK, so it gets a bit of a different voice in there. And he's just aces. And then there's Edward Erdelak. He's a name that if the listeners are familiar with my books at all, they will recognize him. Helen Gould is a relatively new author. Uh, we at Golden Goblin started working with her recently, and I've liked what she's been doing, so she submitted a story for this, and we liked it and used it. Uh, John Linwood Grant is another one of my regular go-to guys. He is a great weird fiction author. So is William Meikle. He is Scottish, now living in Canada. So again, you get those different voices. There is Andy Newton. She is just great as as well. I've worked with her a bunch of times. There's Peter Rollick. He's another one of my most regular regulars. He's been in not every book I've ever put out, but the vast majority of them. There is, like I said, Oscar Rios. He not only owns the publication, but... Me and him have done a bunch of books together. Uh, We've worked on a ton of stuff together, and he's just a really good guy. There's, of course, me. Yay. (laughs) There's Sam Stone, who is another lady from the UK. She's one of my favorites. Yeah, we've interviewed her before. Mm -hmm. I've worked with her for a long time. And I always like working with her, not only 
is she just a great author, but she's just a great person. And she does a lot of, she doesn't just stay in, in the mythos. She does a lot of general horror stuff. Well, there's a lot, I mean, even, even me, I'm most known for my work in the Cthulhu mythos type stuff, but I do straight up horror. I do, uh, sci-fi. I've written sci-fi stories. I've written dark fantasy stories. You know, most authors don't just stick to one certain thing because everybody has multiple interests and multiple things that inspired them. So they want to reflect that. Tim Wagoner is in here. He is a great guy and a great author. In fact, he just won the Bram Stoker Award, I want to say two years ago. Oh, good for him. Yeah. And I think he's won it twice, if I'm not mistaken. I know definitely he won it once. So he is, he's a top gun. And I've always liked working with him. I love his stories. And again, if I have an author I work with multiple times, you can bet they're A, really good at doing what they do, and also really good to work with. They are good people. And sometimes that could be tough to find in in the writing world. But anyways, there's also Helen Yao. She's another relatively newcomer to Golden Goblin, but she appeared in one of our books uh, probably about two years ago now. We wanted to highlight her again because she is a really talented writer and she's just not that well known yet. So I'm hoping this, you know, does something to boost her. And then finally, there's Lee Clark Zumpy. We've been doing stuff together forever. Great guy, great author. So it has a damn good lineup. It has some damn good stories. And it's for a pretty good price up at the Kickstarter. So if you have any interest in horror, vacations, (laughs) Cthulhu mythos, whatever, please give it a look. And if you like what you see, please support it. Yeah, at the time of this recording, I think there's two weeks left on the Kickstarter. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's Horror on Holiday. Just look for that on Kickstarter and you'll find it. Tales of vacations taking very dark turns. Yeah, it's pretty much right there on the tin. We should have done, like, Hostel and Teresa's or something. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We did get a message from Stephen Scott who said that He counted only one use of basically in the last episode. Good job. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. I'm trying. I I notice it when I say the word. I immediately notice it after. So, yeah, I'm still working on that. Well, Stephen Scott is always good about sharing feedback and what he's doing. Like in our Facebook group, he recently posted that he was watching Cat's Eye because he heard us talking about it last time. And he liked it. And then he went and tracked down a copy of Jugface. Uh, as he said, I stumbled on Jugface on Shudder and remembered Brian M. Salmon's recommending this one. And I do, but actually that was Jamie's J-pick for season one of the ABCs. Yeah, I love it. It's some weird fiction with some deep southern gothic themes mm-hmm. thrown in there, and I am a fool for southern gothic, so... I was just in love with that movie. So I'm glad. Um, I think he said he gave it a 3.5 out of 5. Pretty decent. Pretty decent. I'm glad you liked it. I would probably give it a 4. And what do you give it a 5? I give it a 5. I love that movie. But uh, also, uh, Debbie said that she watched both movies that we covered in the O. I think it was the O episode. 
Oh, okay. Nice. It, uh, it might have been the P episode. I can't. I'm sorry. It was the P. Brain fog. It, <laughs> it was, was the, the P, P episode? Yeah. Okay. It was uh, Pandorum and... Oh, right. The pool. Yeah. And she liked both of those. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. And I love hearing that. I love hearing that um, people are happy with what we recommend. Oh, also, Paul Muscone, who is our friend from Ireland. Hey, Paul. And who actually won the Carpenter drawing. So yes. he will be joining us on the Carpenter show on Patreon. The long and coming Carpenter show. Yeah, it's coming, though. It is coming. I have, I've totaled all the lists that we got. I gave them all numerical values. I did all the math. So I now have a master list of all the Carpenter, at least his genre films, from best to worst. Or worst to best, I guess. Yeah, and um, I think we're going to be recording that in May. We yes. had to, to uh, particularly because uh, Paul's from Ireland, you know, there's some scheduling issues when you have a time difference like that. But um, we're supposed to be recording that in May, I hope. But he sent a message that said, By the way, I'm loving Prey. It's rare I find a book I want to keep reading. And you haven't stirred me wrong yet. So. Aww. That's really nice. And yeah, I, I had talked about the Michael Crichton book, Prey, mm-hmm. on a previous episode. And so he picked it up based solely on my recommendation and seems to be enjoying it. So that always makes me happy. Well, the last thing I want to mention is Abraham Ram. Hey, Ram Man. Hi, Ram Man. He actually hipped me to a movie that's on Shudder right now. It's relatively new, so if anybody wants to check it out, it's on there. It's called The Spine of Night. And he's like, hey, this one feels like a Brian M. Salmon's type of film. <laughs> and it is. It's very, very reminiscent of heavy metal. In fact, it's made by the guy who made a large portion of Netflix Love, Sex, and Robots. Or is it Love, Death, and Robots? Love, Death, and Robots. Okay. Which, that initially started as... It was supposed to be a new heavy metal film, but there was a problem with getting the rights and all that, so then they just said, screw it, we'll make it its own thing. And then he went and made this. And it's a movie, it's a complete movie, it's, you know, normal length. But it's also told, it has a complete story, but it's told through little vignettes. And there's a lot of cosmic horror, there's a lot of influences, not only from H.P. Lovecraft, but Robert E. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith, two great dark fantasy writers. Uh, There is a lot of heavy metal in here. Not so much the music, but there's tons of graphic as hell, ultraviolence, and a whole bunch of nudity. A bunch of cartoon boobies all over the place. And, you know, a lot of hanging dong for the ladies. Yeah. Hell, the guys out like that, I guess. <laughs> Anyone who likes that. Who doesn't like a nice cartoon penis? <laughs> yeah, and that was a fun watch. Yeah, so it was. That was, good. that was cool. So, you know, thanks, Abraham, for pointing that out. Yeah, we recently also watched, as far as new watches go, we checked out So Cold the River, which is based on a book. Now, the film started out really strong. I thought, and it had some great atmosphere 
and I loved the look of the film and the music. All of those technicals were great, but by the time we got to the end, I felt like the story was missing a little something. However, I was reading up on some reviews of the film, and just about every review I read mentioned that the book was so much better. Okay. So... I got a copy of the book. Yeah, we'll be reading that. But as for the movie, yeah, I do got to say I was disappointed. It started off strong. The synopsis sounded good. But in the end, well, this should tell you how lackluster it was. Jamie only gave it a three. Yeah. And as much as she loves giving movies high scores, <laughs> me, I could only give it a two. And that was with me... Like halfway through the movie, Brian's like, do you like this movie? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And that was mainly because of the look of it and the music and the, the performances. I just, I, I really was in love with so much of the movie. But then by the time I got to the end, I had to reconcile the fact that the story just seemed lacking. That was the biggest problem was the story. I don't know if it's actually the story itself, like from the novel or just the adaptation going to the big screen. It just didn't work. Well, that's why I wanted to pick up the book because like I said, everyone says that the story, the original story had such rich text and lore uh, that, you know, they explored the characters much deeper. So I was really interested to see what the source material was and I mean I did I did like the movie so if the book is even a little bit better than the movie I think it'll be worth it so yeah. so I'm excited to read that another new watch we watched somewhat recently is a movie that is on Netflix and it's called Metal Lords I was gonna bring that up yeah it is brand new it's from 22 it's not a horror movie it is a comedy movie with a whole lot of heavy metal music in it which makes me happy. Yeah. I mean, often horror fans and metal fans are one in the same. I am. So I am. <laughs> so if you are a fan of metal, I highly re recommend yes. checking out this film. Not only is it very funny, and it is, and it has, uh, it does have a horror connection because the lead character is played by Little Bill from the new It movie. Yeah, that's right. Young Bill. Young Bill. I can't remember his name. Stuttering Bill brain fog but um, <laughs> and i but, can never remember anyone's name so but it was really very funny and did use a lot of music i oh, can't yeah. i don't even want to know how much money they spent on music and it had some really good cameos in it that made me smile. oh my god yes and yeah. you know it's about two kids in high school it's a modern movie and they want to form a metal band but there's only two of them there's a drummer and a guitarist and like well we need a bassist they can't find anyone they finally find a new girl. She came from Ireland, I uh -huh. think. Yeah. And she plays the cello. <laughs> and so the one, the guy who formed the band is like, the cello isn't metal. What the hell are we supposed to do with that? And the other guy, the drummer is like, no, no, she's really good. And she likes the music. And, you know, she would want to do so i mean it's about young love it's about high school drama it's about bullies and it's about heavy metal and it was really good it was really funny if uh i laughed out loud a lot yeah and i just love the music they had a lot of great music choices uh in fact we both gave it a five out of five i highly recommend it uh one last thing i'll mention is the did we talk about it on the last episode in search of tomorrow i think maybe we did 
I can't ever remember. I, I've got permanent the, uh, brain fog. <laughs> the, the sci-fi, the In Search of Darkness guys did yes. a sci-fi from the 80s. And just as you would expect, it's awesome. It's yes. like five hours long, so make sure you bring a lunch if you're going to try to watch it in one sitting. But we did, Brian. And I was like, well, we don't have to watch it all at one time. We can, you know, we can break yeah. it up. And we ended up just watching it straight through. It's just like the In Search of Darkness. They go year by year talking about some of the biggest movies. Not all of them, because that would be impossible. Or Well, I do. I smell a sequel, just yeah. like with In Search of Darkness. There were some noticeable there were some omissions. Absence, yeah. yeah. But it was really good. They talked to a lot of people. They talked about a lot of movies. And then it talked about, you know, not just the movies, but things related to the movies. Like things during that was going on during the time. And, you know, real sp space exploration and how that impacted the sci-fi and just everything. If uh, you are a sci-fi fan, then you will love this doc. I am a sci-fi fan, so yeah, I loved that doc. And so is Jamie, and we both gave it a 5 out of 5. Yeah, it was really good. I think that's about it for the new stuff. Uh, is there anything else? I'm guessing that's it. All right, well, then we will end the intro here and jump into the ABC's portion of the show. We'll be right back. The Bride of the ABCs of Hidden Horror. And we're back, and I'm first. My movie is Q the Winged Serpent. Now, when it gets to Q, there aren't a whole lot of choices. <laughs> and the first season we did this, I purposely avoided this movie because that's what everyone would expect. Because when you think of Q, that's what you think of. Also, I didn't know if Dave would love it. Because it's not typically Dave's kind of movie. Although now he's kind of been getting into more and more stuff like that. So he might have ended up enjoying it. But mainly I avoided it because that's what everyone would expect. Well, now we got down to, to the second season and I was like, all right. But I'm glad I did because I really do like this movie and I think it deserves to be talked about. Yeah, that was also one that I was thinking about doing during our first season. And... Uh... Then I happened to went with uh, Quartermass and a Pit, which is an excellent movie, and we'll get more Quartermass and we'll get more Quartermass in a bit, I guess. But all right, well, as for Q, it's from 1982. It was written and directed by Larry Cohen, one of my faves. Who is Larry Cohen? He is my heart. <laughs> he made some of the greatest schlocky movies, like It's Alive, The Stuff. You can usually count God on, told me to. Which is a really good... Cool, actually, we covered that on the first season. First season? I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I love Cohen. He was really good at shooting without permits. <laughs> and with this movie in particular, I always loved that they had none of the special effects done while they were filming the movie. They had nothing. And then they inserted everything after, during editing. So all of the reaction shots that you get from the actors when they see the creature 
they're not looking at anything. It's just, which I thought was very funny when um, David Carradine is, they had this big shootout at the top of the Chrysler building and it flies off. And then he turns to this, uh, one of the other cops and he's like, that was big. <laughs> but he didn't know. He's like, we have no idea what it looks like. <laughs> but but it is big. And there are some really impressive special effects here. The budget on this film was only $1.1 million. Huh. And even in 1982 money, that's not a lot. Yeah, but it's still a lot for Larry Cohen. Well, yeah, but I mean, he also, they did some stop motion. Yep. They uh, had some puppets. animation like regular animation yeah so he put a lot of work into it the unfortunate thing is that it only pulled 250 at the box office yeah that's 250,000 (laughs) like they didn't even they made a quarter of their budget back which is very sad but it stars michael moriarty who was a cohen favorite candy clark whom horror fans will know from various things i think most notably is the blob remake and David Carradine and Richard Roundtree. Mm-hmm. And who is Richard Roundtree? Well, shut your mouth. I'm just talking about cute. Richard Roundtree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In this movie, it takes place in New York City. There are two simultaneous investigations going on. There is a string of murders in which the victims are being flayed. Alive, And then there are also mysterious disappearances of people and random body parts just kind of landing in the street. Most or notably... one guy losing a head. Most notably, all the people that are disappearing or whatever are all on rooftops or at the top of tall buildings or something like that. Yeah, in the very opening, there's a window washer. Yeah. And David Carradine is a cop, and so is Richard Roundtree. And they are kind of trying to figure out what's going on with these serial killings and also what is up with all of these strange random deaths that just keep occurring throughout the city. And also there start to be sightings of a, quote, giant bird. So the investigation into the flayings ends up taking David Carradine to the Museum of Natural History where he talks with a guy who tells him all about the Aztec Indians and uh, when they worshipped Quetzalcoatl and how there would be sacrifices, but willing sacrifices, people who gave their bodies on purpose in service of this god, Quetzalcoatl, who was a winged serpent. So there is this belief that someone has been performing these rituals, which has caused Quetzalcoatl to come back, to rise from his ancient slumber. And now he is terrorizing the city of New York. Michael Moriarty is a small-time criminal who gets involved because he is the wheelman during a diamond heist. And he ends up going on the run and he runs to the Chrysler building and he runs to the, goes all the way up to the top of the Chrysler building. He runs a lot. The dome under the needle and he discovers a dead body, but he doesn't only discover a dead body. He also discovers a huge nest with an enormous egg. And so he doesn't say anything to anyone until he overhears the police discussing this case. And then he decides that 
he can make a lot of money off this if he withholds the information he knows until they agree to pay him $1 million plus amnesty for everything he has ever done, even things they don't know about yet. And then the police go on this search and, well, they find it. But in the meantime, we have several bloody murders. We have some extended gunshot or gunfights. I guess it's not really a gunfight if the other thing isn't shooting back. Cops are know. shooting. Cops are shooting at out of this it. damn Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. And, you know, I love this creature. Yeah. I do. I feel sorry for it. I'm like, it's just Quetzalcoatling. Yeah, just it's, doing what he does. He's just doing what he does. He's hungry. You know, yes, he's plucking people off, you know, rooftop swimming pools and grabbing Bites people. Bites a lot of heads off. Yeah. That seems to be his thing. <laughs> he likes doing that. But because of that, I think we get some pretty decent gore. Yeah. It's not, you know, splashes of blood everywhere. But what we do see, I think, is done really well. The, the flame body scenes hurts. look really good. Yeah. I was really impressed with the several times that when we were watching them flay someone, and particularly on the face, like when they were taking off the face, mm-hmm. it looked very yeah. real. It was very realistic. So I was really impressed with that. I also like the stop motion effects. And there is one really beautiful shot in this film that I love. It's a helicopter shot because they did a lot of that. And as Brian said, you know, they had a helicopter and they were going to use it. Well, it costs a lot of money, so I don't really blame them. I would get as much out of it as I possibly could. Plus, if you're filming a movie about a giant winged creature, Monster bird, yeah. then it only makes sense to get as many of those shots as you can, sort of a bird's eye view. But there is one shot that I love, and it shows uh, just the skyscrapers of New York. And this is before you get a good glimpse of the creature, because much like something like Jaws, you don't see it in the beginning. You see a claw here, a beak there, shadows, and you don't get the like the hero shot until really well into the film. But early on, there is a shot where the camera is following the shadow of Quetzalcoatl flying. And you see the shadow cross over some skyscrapers, and it looks really good. I I just, I love it. And so I think this is probably one of Cohen's more ambitious films. Yeah. Just considering the size of the creature and the things that they wanted to pull off. Well, they built a practical claw for it because they have several shots of somebody walking around doing whatever. And then you see this big ass monster claw come down and grab them. And, you know, they built that. That had to cost some pretty penny. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other various body like there's parts. there's the head. Yeah. So, I mean, not only do they have stop motion, so they all had to, you know, do all that. They have regular animation, as I said. They have these giant props. So, yeah, I'm guessing this was supposed to be, like, one of his bigger films. Like, ooh, this is going to be a hit. Because, you know, Plus King Kong, budget, right? You, you know? know, King Kong was in New York and doing his thing. Well, instead of the Empire State Building, we're doing it in the Chrysler Building, but it's that kind of a thing. Which I think, isn't the Chrysler Building actually taller than the I Empire think it State is, State yeah. Building? But it's just, it's a good creature feature monster movie. It doesn't take itself too seriously, nor would I want it to. 
and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, if um, and this is the 40th anniversary of it, too. Nice! The year, anyway. Yeah. If anyone hasn't seen it and they do want to see it, it is coming on More Max Monday. Monday. What the hell is More Max? I don't know. It's some Cinemax shoot-off. But at two, <laughs> at 2.50 in the morning, Eastern Time, 5.50 Western, it, uh, or Pacific, I guess. They say West, but Pacific Time, it's going to be showing. Uh, so if you're up at 2.50 in the morning <laughs> and you want to see Q, you can. Uh, other than that, I don't know where else you can find it. Wait, that doesn't make sense. If it's 2.30 Eastern, it would be earlier for Pacific time. Because that's how the sun works. Well, it actually... Yeah, well, they then have I guess it later. Due, well, yeah, they do. But I guess they're doing... Um, maybe they're doing two separate screening... Or, you know, showing it twice. Because okay. it does say 2.50 East, 5.50 West. But maybe mm. they're just showing it... I don't know. I don't know. But if you want to watch it somewhere, well, you're out of luck unless you have Pluto or Apple TV. I mean, it is for rent on YouTube, Amazon, Vudu, and Apple. But if you want to watch it streaming without renting it, uh, I hope you have Pluto. But it also has a Blu-ray release. I was going to say, if you already love this movie and you know you like it and you want a copy for yourself, Scream Factory has an awesome Blu-ray of it. Yeah, as they do. They're all they're always awesome. Yeah. But I think this is really fun. I'm a big fan of Michael Moriarty. I know Brian doesn't love him. I do like him, but he always comes off for me as like uh, a less manic Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of see that. So, you know, if you're going to do that kind of shtick, just go for it. Nicolas Cage, he... He owns that shit, and he just rides it out. And he's like, he dares people to, you know, say anything about it or not believe him or not go with him. This guy is it's almost like a half-hearted kind of Nicolas Cage-type vibe. And obviously, he's not copying Cage. This is from 82. He's been around forever. But that's how I always see him, as like Nicolas Cage on volume or something. I can kind of see that. I've always liked his quirky acting style. Uh, I think that it's m much more highlighted in this stuff. Yeah. But. Which I do like him moments. in more. Well, they call him Mo. Yeah, they do. Because he always wants Mo. <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend this one. I think it's a lot of fun. I'm glad to finally get to covering it, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there going, finally. Yeah. <laughs> because you just assumed that if we're talking Q movies, this would be the one we talk about. And honestly, even this time, I considered going in another direction, but it's really difficult to do with Q, and... There was one movie called Queen Crab from 2015 or 16. Oh boy, that sounds that good. I was like, oh, and it's about a giant crab, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I, uh, I could, I could watch that, and I might still just for the hell of it. But then I had a feeling that it might be like a sci-fi type movie, and mm. I just, I used to love sci-fi original movies. Why? Well, I used to think they were a lot of fun about 10 years ago, and but Ugh. now I just can't bring myself to want to watch them. They like are I, so bad. I just don't care anymore. But one of these days I might check it out. But then I was like, you know what? Just go with Q. You know you'll like it. 
you know you des- you think it deserves to be talked about. Plus, I'm a huge Larry Cohen fan. Yeah. So why not? So that's what I did. Well, I'm glad uh, you picked it. I always wanted to talk about this one, but I have, you know, I've already locked myself into this whole season of cosmic horror type stuff. So, although this does have a little flavor of Lovecraft in it. Yes, well, I was gonna really. Say, this would count if you wanted it to. It's talking about ancient gods. Exactly. And how, you know, ancient religions, everybody thinks they're dead and gone and no big thing, but they're actually still alive in, you know, the dark pockets of the world and hidden, but they're a very real thing. And that realness comes back to bite you in the ass when you least expect it. Do you know what this reminded me of while we were watching it this time? Do hmm. you remember that movie we watched? Because I want, I was considering covering it uh, for M, uh, Mardi Gras Massacre. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the and I believe it was Aztec. Yeah, I think it was, it was. an Aztec god that he was sacrificing yeah. the evil women to. So while we were watching this, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I was like, it'd be funny if I did end up actually covering it. Unfortunately, that movie wasn't good. Yeah, <laughs> I thankfully have forgotten all about it <laughs> for the most part until you reminded me. But okay, anything else you want to say about Q? No, nah, it's it's a, a straight up monster movie, but it's fun. Well, as uh, David Carradine says a couple times in the movie, just a good old-fashioned monster. Yeah. But it has Larry Cohen's usual style, which I really like. It has, you know, New York is a major character, and I love that. And he did that quite a bit, too. Yeah. Yeah. He, He was a New Yorker, you know, at his heart. And that's why New York is a huge thing in the vast majority of his movies. So, yeah, it's just it's a good old fashioned monster flick. And I'm down for that. Yeah. Okay, well, that'll wrap up Q. What do you have that you've brought to the table? I think you kind of teased it a little bit earlier. First off, there's going to be no other suggestions for my pick. Usually I throw out a few extra, you know, cosmic horror, Lovecraftian type movies that fit the letter. But yeah, there's not going to be anything for this. Q is a tough letter. In fact, it is so tough. We were toying around with the idea of just doing a free pick for Q. In other words... Like that free space and bingo. Yeah, ditching the <laughs> alphabet thing and just picking a random movie we want to talk about. We still might do that for other letters coming up, like, I don't know, X. Because, believe it or not, some letters just don't have a lot of movies to pick from. But Q still has another movie that fits my bill for cosmic horror. Big surprise, it is another Quatermass film. If you did listen to our first season of ABCs, you will remember that I brought in the movie Quatermass and the Pit, which is my favorite Quatermass movie. It is awesome and excellent and all kinds of Lovecraftian cosmic horror goodness. But so is this. Now, this is called the Quartermass Experiment. It's not spelled as you would spell experiment. It's just X. And then There's a reason for that. Experiment. And yes, there is a reason because at this time, X was the big no-no rating in the UK because this is a British film. And they wanted to actually highlight that, saying, look how scary and look how mature this film is. It got an X rating, which is nothing like our X ratings where it's, you know, all porno and all that stuff. It was just like a hard R back then. And so they wanted to highlight it. So that's why they called it Experiment. 
And there was also the TV show. Yes, that uh, came that, out first. That spelled it with the EX. Yes. And so they were differentiating themselves from that as well. And they've recently, and by recently I mean 2015, I think, there was another Quartermass Experiment TV show. Quartermass is a big thing in sci-fi horror circles, specifically those in the UK where it's from. They get a lot of play, they have a lot of fans, and rightfully so, because their movies are awesome. Uh, it's all originated by a guy named Nigel Neal, he wrote the original BBC television play, and then that was adapted by Val Guest, who is the director, and Richard H. Lando. This is a Hammer film, so you have that going for it. It's in black and white, doesn't have Hammer's usual gaudy color, which I do love so much. Which is the Quatermass and the Pit film Does. is very colorful yes. and, and beautiful. I mean, the, I love... Hammer, I love them and their color palette. And Quatermass in the Pit is an excellent example of that. But this is being black and white. It's a striking black and white. It looks. Oh, good. it looks damn good. Once again, it's uh, a dead horse. I'm always beating. But back then, they knew how to film in black and white because that was a thing. That was their medium at the time. They were just now going into color. So you still had a lot of DPs. And a lot of camera people and just directors and whatever. People who light the set. That's another thing. You you can't light a movie for black and white as you do for color. It's, it's this whole real almost lost art form that a lot of directors now, they try to go black and white because, ooh, it's artistic. And they just, they don't, they can't do it as well. They don't have the, the schooling, uh, you know, the skills. What year was this? Did you mention? I missed it. Uh, I don't think I did, but this was 1955. Okay. It was also released, I think, in the, U in the U.S. as The Creeping Unknown, which is a good title, too. I like that one. But it is part of the Quatermass trilogy, and it's been remade a few times. And if you want to know how big of a deal Nigel Neal is... Well, John Carpenter cited him as a major influence in Prince of Darkness. In fact, he originally wrote a screenplay for Prince of Darkness, but Nigel, from what I understand, is a bit of a prickly sort. He's easily offended or upset or something. So he bitched at Carpenter about something. I think maybe the, the blood and the violence and all that. So he didn't want him to use a script, so Carpenter wrote the script for Prince of Darkness, but he did it under a, a pen name. Anyways, that's neither here nor there, but it does show you just the kind of respect people have for Nigel. He is really good at doing sci-fi horror, specifically with a Lovecraftian cosmic bent. Well, and this is, I think, a notable film because... It's before we really delved into space exploration. Well, we were already in the throes of yeah, exploration, we were like but this is before we were able to get up there. Yes. And this is one of those, just like I talked about before, with how you can always tell what was going on mm -hmm. in society through horror. 
you know, with the big bug movies and the atomic age, this is when people were starting to get nervous about space travel or what we were, what would happen if we went up into space. And of course this is, um, only six years before the Russians got their first man into space. Yeah. So we were right on the heels of getting up there and people were afraid of it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the unknown and that is the scariest thing. You don't know what's going to happen. A story I always remember is before they started testing the atomic bomb, there was a, it seemed to be a sound scientific theory that by letting off the A-bomb, it could very well ignite the whole atmosphere. And basically that would kill the entire planet. It didn't do that, obviously, but there were some serious scientists, you know, big learned guys who were like, don't you get it? This is going to happen. There's going to be a chain reaction and you're going to kill everybody on Earth. It says something that he still went and did it. <laughs> well, that is actually a pretty good theme in this film, too. Yes. But um, go ahead. Also, just as an aside, do I sound like a net Benning to you right now? No. That's what I keep hearing in my head. Whenever I talk, I'm hearing a net Benning. <laughs> Well, that's a good thing. You know, <laughs> go with it. <laughs> but, okay, why don't you uh, give us an idea what the movie's about? It first starts off a couple kids in the English countryside messing around on a farm, and then they hear something coming at them. It's a big whoosh and lights, and they don't know. It could be a storm. It could be anything. It turns out to be a rocket. Quartermass is like a big-time rocket engineer. He's all about space, and to quote Star Trek, it is the final frontier. So he's all about getting people up there and, you know, poking around and all that. They launched a rocket into space with three astronauts. Something, they lost contact with the astronauts, and the spaceship was just floating around, so he used his remote control science stuff to bring the rocket back home. He landed it in England, and there's only one astronaut left. And he's totally crazy, like almost catatonic. He just says, help me, and then that's it. He never says another wor word. Yeah, and when you say only one left, you don't mean the other two were dead. You no. mean they're gone. gone. Like, they're just not there. And, that, I mean, where can they go? It's not like in space you can open up a door and toss them outside. <laughs> Nobody knows what happened. One guy's out of his mind, and there's also appears to be some physical ailments, and then the other two are missing. And that is the mystery of, you know, what happened. As they continue to look into this history, they get some footage for the cameras that were inside the spacecraft, and they begin to, you know, try to play it. And then they take this one survivor guy to a hospital and are trying to examine him medically. So this is a very, what I call, hard sci-fi movie. It takes a lot of scientific facts and a lot of theories. And there's a lot of people talking about this, that. So it, initially, at in the beginning, it's not what you'd call an action-packed film. There's a lot of people discussing about the mysteries of the universe and, you know, how horrifying it is and it really is it's why i like cosmic horrors so much because space is fucking scary well it's trying to kill you it is the most hostile environment you could ever think of i and mean just what is that um we had we're just talking a couple of weeks ago at the game about how astronauts lose 
what is it, like 1% of their bone density? Like per week or per month that they're in space, yeah. Space actively tries to kill you every moment you're in there. There is cosmic radiation that we can't shield ourselves from. We try and we dampen the effect, but astronauts still get irradiated. They lose muscle mass. They lose bone density. And these are the people inside spaceships relatively safe. Yeah. And so imagine being on a space station for, what? those are what, two years at a time? Well, I think... runs on a space station? Yeah, I think the longest person was about that. They, they do constant exercise and they're drinking, you know, nutrition shakes and pills and they're doing everything to fight it but when they come home they're still messed up well and it's because we don't belong there no you know they're and the fact that we persist in trying to and then you know talking about now you've got civilians going into space well know. technically they've never been in space they always do this near orbit thing where they're still inside the atmosphere they're close to it, but if you want to get technical, like William Shatner recently went up. Right. He didn't go to space, quote unquote, but it's close enough. He just went really high yeah. up. But, you know, there's constant discussion of uh, terraforming Mars and... Yeah, I don't um, see that ever you know, happening. It's just, we don't belong there. No. We don't. And every time we go up there, it tries to kill us. Yeah. So... You know, we should learn. Now, I am fascinated by space, but to be honest, it's one of those subjects that once we... Because you and I get into a lot of just really prolonged discussions about various things, whether it be space or religion or whatever. Especially when we're high. And, uh, <laughs> but even then, even when we're not, we'll yeah. just start talking about something and we keep going. And every time we start talking about space, it's so overwhelming. Because it is, because by its, it's very infinite. nature. I mean, people don't stop to think about that. They, they probably know the facts like, yes, it's infinite and blah, blah, blah. But, and the nearest other solar system to us uh, is like X number of light years away. But they know the facts, but they really don't comprehend. Because you can't. No, it, it is beyond you. It is seriously. I mean, this is why Lovecraft and his things, they always came from a cosmic source because it is so unknown. It is so vast. It is so ancient. It is so beyond everything you can comprehend. And who knows what kind of crazy, horrible bullshit is out there. Do I believe in aliens? I sure as hell do. Space is so damn big, it would be crazy to think that only on this one teeny tiny planet did life ever evolve. But do I believe in UFOs? Not really. Because space is so damn vast. Yeah. I mean, those distances, unless they come up with some magical technical dream technology like folding space and all that stuff, you're never going to cross that distance. It is so huge. And just you start looking into the laws of like light speed. You can't go past it. Everything in science says that's the maximum. Now, whether it is or isn't, who knows? There's string theories and all this other highbrow, incredibly intricate and like, it's a type of quote unquote science and facts and all that, that will drive you insane if you start to think about it. Cause it is just so far beyond quantum entanglement and shit like that, where it just makes no sense but in theory, on paperwork, it makes sense. 
stuff like dark matter, which is the majority of the universe. And we don't know what it is. No. We don't even know if it exists. All signs point to it existing. Everybody goes, yes, it exists. But we have no real evidence. And that is the vast majority of when it comes to space. It is just so far beyond our pitiful little human ass on this one teeny tiny blue pebble. In a not very big, not very important solar system. Which I think is why it's ripe for horror. Yes. One of my favorite Lovecraft quotes is, you know, the oldest and strongest emotion for man is fear. And that makes sense. When we were, you know, primitive little ape people or whatever crawling out of the forests, fear is what kept us alive. But then he continues, and the strongest and most powerful kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And it really is. If you don't know what the hell's going on, what's out there, anything... That's going to give you the most dread. That is, it ties right right back to being a child and being afraid of the dark. Because if you can, if the lights are on and you can see what's around you, you're fine. If you turn off the lights and it's the exact same room with the exact same things, but you can't see, suddenly it's terrifying. Yes. Anyways, enough about that. <laughs> Sorry for derailing. Uh, see my earlier note about prolonged discussions. Yeah. <laughs> As for this movie, yeah, they're beginning to, they're doing some medical tests on this poor guy. And his things are still working, like his heart and lungs and brain, but they're working wrong. Like his blood pressure is so low, he should be dead. But obviously he's not. The same goes with his heartbeat or his respiration and just... It's clear something messed this guy up big time, but nobody knows. Eventually, they get the photographs, uh, the the film, from the rocket in space, and it's clear they had some sort of alien encounter. But once again, I love it because it's not the typical little green men in a spaceship or anything like that. They run into something. They don't really know. They make theories about it, but again, it's unknown. But the theory is it was probably some sort of alien life form, but it wasn't a physical thing. It could have been an energy life form. Kind of like, I don't know, the color out of space. And this life form killed the other two guys, reduced them down to nothing. They eventually find some traces of them, and they're like goo. But on the third guy... It kind of went into him. Now, maybe it was trying stuff out with the first guy, and that didn't work. And then they tried to do something with the second guy. That didn't work. Then they tried the third guy, and ah, that worked. So now this thing is living inside this guy, and it's physically changing him. So you get some body horror. Then the guy escapes from the hospital, and that's when shit really goes down. He can just, like, suck the life right out of you, and he's continuing to mutate. Eventually, they have a final confrontation at this church where they're actually filming the restoration of it. And you get other little hints of what's going on because you see this guy creeping around. It's not just a church. It's Westminster Abbey. Oh, that's right. Thank you. And uh, which is a church. I'm sorry. I'm not going to go woohoo. <laughs> you get a lot of good hints and like there's a zoo that gets wiped out by this thing. But there's also they don't draw your attention to it but if you keep your eyes open 
you'll notice there's like a snail trail going all over the place. Yeah. And it sometimes goes up the wall and eventually they recognize it and, you know, bring it to the forefront of the story. But I like how they place that out where if you can see it, the audience can go, hey, what's that? While the characters may not notice it. When it's all said and done, this poor guy has mutated into some completely Lovecraftian tentacle blob monster. It's part, you know, animal, part plant, part something else. And it's about to have babies. It's about to spread its seed on the wind, much like a plant. And Quatermass and his other buddies, they realize if that happens, we're all fucked. Because one of these things is nasty enough. If this thing pops out a couple thousand babies, we're just dead. Luckily, they managed to figure out a way to stop it. And... I love how at the end, everybody's like, woo, that was close. What are we going to do now? And Quartermass, he is our, he's a bastard in this. I like that where he is like our, quote, hero, unquote, but he is focused. He is single-minded. He's all about the science. He's all about exploring. He's like, this is horrible, but we must continue on from this. Well, and he even says at one point, uh, someone's saying, you know, three men are, well, at least two men are dead. And there's this other man here who's in the hospital. And this is all because of you. You should feel bad about that. And he's like, they knew what they were getting into. Yeah. This, is the, this is the job. This is the price you pay for exploration. And that's why I was going to say, I have a lot of admiration for astronauts. That has to be, again, it's probably my most terrifying thing, and yet these people are throwing themselves into outer space whenever they get a chance. And that is true bravery. That's like the old sea captains, you know, setting off across an ocean, not knowing what the hell is over there, not knowing if there's sea monsters or the Kraken or any of that stuff that's going to eat them, but just going, you know, here's a big body of water. I assume there's land on the other side. Let's go see. And even without the monsters, which they did even believe in yes. back then, but even without all of that, there were things that they knew would, would happen, like scurvy, you know. <laughs> or just or, a storm. You know, anything. Like, it's... Storms it was, at sea are no joke. It was dangerous, uh, like the polar expedition. Yes. When they were trying to find the Northwest Passage. Exploration has a cost. And those willing to pay, they are heroes. Now, some people do it just for, you know, financial gain. Some do it for the quest for glory. But no matter what the reason, that is a huge thing. Hurl yourself into the unknown to find out what's in there. What's going to happen when you're in there? Or in Quatermass's case, hurling other people yeah. into the unknown because well, cause, you want to experiment. But he's also, he's an older dude. He ain't going in outer space. I think he would if he could. But, you know, astronauts, that's a young man's game. Or, you know, you have to be incredibly physically fit to do it. Just because of the physical rigors it takes on your body. I think it's interesting that, that he is an American. Well, that was one thing. They did that specifically to try to draw in an American audience. Originally, Quatermass is English, and in all the other Quatermass stuff, he is. But in this one, they decided to make him and the leading lady both American to, you know, 
See, you know, there's a bunch of English people in this movie, but the leads are American. Hey, America, don't you want to watch this movie now? But it also kind of makes it come off like they're this guy's an asshole. Yeah, which, and, hey, he's American. Uh, he's American. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I, again, I like that about his character. You know, he's worried about the planet and he's worried about this thing conquering it and killing people. But once it's all said and done, once it's over, somebody asks him, so what are we going to do now? And he's like, start over and begin again. And I love that. He does that whole walking off into the fog at the end, like he's Humphrey Bogart, Mm -hmm. but alone, you know, without his friend. And he's just like, we're going to start over. And 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 as he's walking away, you're as the audience, you're left with this damn. (laughs) Like you saw what just happened. He knows what it cost him in human lives. Not only the three astronauts, but all the people who died to that monster thing. He knows what it could have cost him if that damn thing had had babies. Mm-hmm. But he's still determined, we have to know. The space is everywhere around us. We've got to go there and just experiment. Knowledge. That is his religion. And I like that about him. I might not necessarily agree with it, but I like how driven he is. No, I do. I do like it. And I think the ending of that film, it kind of stuns you. You're like, after all this bullshit, after everything you've gone through, after you finally killed that adorable monster, (laughs) which is super cute at the end when it's like hanging over the... It's not really, but it kind of is. I mean, I just think it's adorable because it's it's this big blobby thing and it's sort of got little tendrils and it's hanging off the rafters when they're uh, doing the construction on Westminster Abbey. So it's just kind of like... And then, you know, it gets... They set it on fire and it's like, ah, what the hell, you know, but. (laughs) They turn off all the power to London, all over London, just so they could feed all that power into this thing just to kill it. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, all of that that they've gone through and all the people that have died. And then he just drops that Mm -hmm. at the end. Well, we did it. We're safe. Time to get back at it. And you're like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Coitamass is badass. (laughs) Anyways, that's pretty much the movie. It is great sci-fi horror. Yes, it's from 1955, so it is a bit dated with the look and the talk and... Oh, the acting. Yeah, and the acting. Brian, even though I know you love these movies, like I do, you don't tend to love the acting. Well, just because it is dated. It was from a different time and a different style. It always reminds me of, look here, see, we're going to get there. Blah, 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 you mm-hmm. mug. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, it, take a powder and blow his copper. And <laughs> take a powder and blow his copper to the cops. <laughs> but if that thing doesn't stop you from enjoying this movie and it shouldn't, it doesn't stop me, then you will have a lot of fun, especially if you do like sci-fi horror. If you like, you know, scientific possibilities and what-ifs and the horrible things that could happen because of that. This is the essence of good cosmic horror. So naturally, I love the hell out of it. And hopefully you will too. Yeah, and unfortunately though... It's not streaming anywhere. It's not streaming anywhere. You can find it on YouTube if you want to watch it. Oh, that's right, yeah. And there's also, like, we have a DVD two-set with Quartermass in a pit. Now we have, they released Quartermass in a Pit on Blu-ray many years later, but I still kept that DVD because it has this on it, 
which I don't think has ever been released, at least not here in the U.S., or that I'm aware of. It might have came out sometime recently. But yeah, you can watch it on YouTube, and it's a really good, it's a really good transfer. Yeah. Like, it, it looks good. So, I would recommend that. Just go there and watch it if you're interested. And I think you should be interested. Yes. It's, it's a really, it's a good film. I mean, it has its... You know, it's from the 50s. It's a 50s monster movie, basically. But it has its and it also has some of moments. That, but well, there's also some of that 50s, like, this is life in the 50s. Especially when it comes to, like, women. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they don't come out and say this, but there's a little bit of that, get back in the kitchen, toots, and make me a sandwich. And just, <laughs> everybody goes along with it. They're like, yeah, that's, that's the way life should be. Well, that was the 50s. Well, it was. But, I mean... I don't know. I think this is a great movie. It's been very influential over the years, and I highly recommend it. Very cool. All right, well, that's two Q movies. Yeah, I was surprised that we could do it. That's probably going to be the last time we can do Q. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, I don't know, maybe I'll watch Queen Crab and it'll blow me away. Well, but. there is another Quartermass film. So I could always do that, I guess. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to dip out now and then come back with Bumps in the Night, which is a sort of a sort of a Easter-y special. I shoehorned in as I shoehorned the hell out of it to try to make it fit for Easter. Oh, also, my movie featured eggs. Yeah. Mine featured an alien spawning like a horrible dandelion from hell. That's kind of like eggs. Or Jesus. Or Jesus. No. <laughs> he spawns like a dandelion from hell? No. <laughs> no, I was just trying to make it fit. All right, here comes Bumps. Bumps in a night. Okay, welcome to Bumps in the Night. And seeing as how it's Easter weekend, I thought it would be fun to do something special for Easter. However, I came up with, first I was like, Let's do, let's rank our favorite Easter movies. And then Brian's like, there are like three. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Well, I actually did look up Easter movies, and there are a bunch of them, but they're all from the mid-2000s. They're when people realized, hey, there's not enough Easter horror movies, so right. they got a bunny costume. Yeah. They got their video camera, they're filming in the backyard, and they have a slasher bunny man running around. Yeah, they're pretty much all crap. Yeah. And then everyone name checks Night of the Leapus, which, I mean, it has rabbits in it, but I don't know I don't if that's think actually it takes place on Easter. But I could be remembering it wrong. It's been a minute since yeah. I've seen that movie. But I do love the movie, but I wouldn't really call it an Easter movie just because it's about rabbits. Uh, there's uh, something called Resurrection from 99. Which I have seen. Which he's seen, but I have not. Um, it's a pretty cool little thriller, kind of like Seven. Uh, in this, uh, Christopher Lambert is... I can't remember if he's a cop or a reporter. I want to say he's a cop. Anyways, there's a killer going around. He's Cajun. I did read that. Oh, okay. Eh, that explained his accent away, I guess. 
there's a killer going around doing the whole pieces thing. He's killing people and then taking various pieces from them because he wants to make his own Jesus. Yeah, they discover throughout their investigation that all the victims are 33 years old. Yep. And so then it turns out. So I really want to see that. I haven't, but it's a good movie. There's something from '83 called um, "On the Third Day," which is a British film, and I have been able to find very little about it. I couldn't find it anywhere to watch. So, eh, there's that. So really, there's just not a lot for Easter. I'm like, okay, well, what else can we do? Too bad we didn't do that top 10 zombie movies, you know, for Easter. Just because zombie Jesus, you know. But I was like, oh, well, we already did that. So what can we do? So then I thought, what if we discussed Easter eggs in horror movies? Hmm. So I thought that might be cool. And a very loose tie-in, but a cheeky tie-in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we found some Easter eggs to talk about in horror movies. So you found some. You want me to go first? Well. Yeah, we both found some, but you go ahead and go first because okay. I talked a lot. And I'm sure many of these are going to be crossing over each other, so I guess we'll skip them if they've already been done. And a lot of these people may already know. A yeah. lot of the ones I came across, most of the ones I came across, I already knew, but doesn't mean they're not fun to talk about. One that I didn't notice, or if I did, I didn't put two and two together, because at the time, it wasn't a thing, but remember the movie Hush? Yeah. Directed by... Flanagan. Yes. You know how that's about a woman who's deaf, and she's getting stalked by a killer. Is she played by Marley Matlin? Eh. That joke will... Make sense. Make sense (laughs) in the next segment. (laughs) It's so weird when we do stuff like that, but... But uh, she's also a writer, and she wrote a book called Midnight Mass. Oh my god, I didn't even remember that. No. Oh, wow. So, I've heard that Flanagan had this script or this idea for many years, like in his back pocket. So, he clearly had it back when he made this. So, that's that's kind of cool. very cool. Yeah, I like when directors do that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, someone who does that, and another Easter egg is James Wan does that a lot, and he actually has several. Uh, like the uh, Billy shows up on the chalkboard in yeah, that they mention in, that in one of these things. And he's then, actually Billy shows up in a lot of places. Yeah, um, I think he's in a Death Sentence, like a graffiti. Yep. In, the, in one of the scenes in the movie Dead Silence. Dead Silence. He's doll. one of the puppets. Yeah, yeah, at the end. And then uh, there's another one that is not quite as often talked about. I think it is more recently, but people didn't notice it right away when it came out. But in Saw, when we first meet John Kramer yeah, in the hospital. Yeah, he's drawing the bear trap he, thing, Yeah, the reverse yeah. bear trap drawing is there. But it but it shows up so early in the movie that you don't And it's so small it and together. they don't focus on it. Yeah, I mean, it's very intentionally, you know, Easter eggy. For the first person to have noticed that, I give a lot of respect. They really had to be watching that movie. Nowadays, everybody can go, I saw it too. Yeah, I'm sure you did. But, uh, whatever. Another one I found is, and this ain't much of an Easter egg, but the characters in Halloween H2O watch Scream 2. Ooh. Well, gee, I wonder why. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I knew about that one. I think most people probably do. I mean, some of these are painfully obvious, like the janitor in Scream wears a Freddy Krueger sweater. Oh, he also wears his hat and his name is Fred. (laughs) But whatever. This is one that I didn't know about until I found this and I've never paid attention. And it's really cool. There is a funeral home in Slither that's called R.J. McCready's. No, I didn't notice that either. That is cool. But there's they do that a lot. Like in the, the Dawn of the Dead remake. Now, this is one I remember. I didn't see it on any of his lists. Most people, I guess normies like this, probably didn't notice it. But in the Dawn of the Dead remake, they have cameos from everybody that was in Dawn of the Dead who's still alive and all that. Except for uh, the woman who was in that movie. Yet, they named one of the stores after her. Mm-hmm. Galen Ross. Yeah, I noticed. Which, when I saw that in the theater, that stuck out to me right away. Because whenever you're in malls particularly fake malls, I like to look at the store names just because I, like, for instance, the coffee shop in that mall called Hallowed Grounds. Mm -hmm. I just love that. And Galen Ross immediately stuck out to me. And one, I was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, it's a nod to her. But I just think it sounds like a cool name for a store. Like, it just sounds, I don't know, like it'd be an upscale clothing shop. Or something. So anyway, it was good. Like it's one of those things that you pick out if you know it, and if you don't know it, it just sounds believable. Another one that I didn't notice, but in the movie Krampus, when they show the main character, the main boy, he has a box of leftover Halloween candy. The sucker from Sam is in there. You know Sam's iconic. Yeah, sucker. I never noticed that, yeah. and I've seen Krampus a lot. I know, but I'm looking at a picture right here, and yeah, there it is. That's cool. Yeah, it must be just a really quick shot. I never noticed. Uh, Well, I mentioned the thing a while ago, and this is one, and I think everyone knows this, but I just love it, is that if you speak Norwegian, then you know exactly what the movie's about from the opening from the opening when they first meet the Norwegians, they spell out everything. Yeah, I mean, in Norwegian, it's not even like a hint. It's like, no, you idiots, get away from it. It's not a dog. It's a thing. Get away. <laughs> so it's telling you exactly the whole plot right there. But I guess he was betting on not many people speaking Norwegian in America, or this was supposed to play in. A, I wonder. If in Norway, <laughs> do they change that? That's a good question. Because otherwise that would suck. Your first time watching this movie and they totally give it away. Yeah, I don't know. I actually wondered that myself. I'm like, do you, would they make them not Norwegian? Maybe they make yeah. them something Swedish. else. I don't know. <laughs> this is one for you. I wouldn't get it because I've never seen Ingle even a single second of this show, but okay. I know you were a fan. The Dharma Initiative logo from Lost appears in Cloverfield. Oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah, never. <laughs> There's a lot of the stuff that crosses over. They have a thing with uh, some made-up drink called like Slusho. Yeah. That appears in a lot of their stuff. Uh, by that, I mean J.J. Abrams. I mean, that appears... Yeah, it's like red apple cigarettes yeah, to exactly. Quentin Tarantino. It's just little, you know, well, Easter eggs. This one I knew because I remember seeing it. Tim Curry's Pennywise is in the 2017 movie It. Uh, the doll. Yes. Right? It's the doll, yeah. I remember It's that. where uh, Richie is locked in a room mm-hmm. filled with clowns. 
one of them looks exactly like Tim Curry's version yeah, of it. I thought that was neat. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Fans of Night of the Creeps will know this, but there is a shout out to Monster Squad on the wall of the bathroom when Wyatt gets killed. Yeah, that was again Fred Decker. Fred Decker. Yeah. He had that idea going. He knew that was going to be his next movie, so he just, you know, made a little joke yeah. out of it. I actually feel like, I want to say I heard at some point that it wasn't for sure yet, but. Well, no, nothing is for sure in Hollywood, especially until it's for sure, until it's printed and on the screen. So, yeah, it could have been canceled or they could have just changed your mind or whatever, but that he was hopeful for that. Uh, here's an obvious one. There are Freddy Krueger gloves in Evil Dead 2. Yeah, there are. There's actually more than one, or it could just be the same one and they moved it into different places. But it's most noticeably down in a basement for one and then tool shed for the other. Well, that goes back to the whole Wes Craven, Sam Raimi kind of little war they yeah. had going, like with the Hills Have Eyes poster in uh, the original Evil Dead. Or is it Evil Dead 2? I think it's the original Evil Dead in the basement. There's the torn Yes, Hills Have Eyes poster. And then in Nightmare on Elm Street, she's watching Evil Dead. Yeah, it's it's a thing. Speaking of Sam Raimi, uh, there, of course, is the magazine, the Fangoria magazine in the trunk of the car in Army of Darkness. No, of course. But that was a thank you to Fangoria. Oh, you know, I I never knew why. I just figured he put it in there because horror filmmakers loved putting Fangoria, mm-hmm. and I even put Fangoria in a movie I made back then, <laughs> and it's uh, not good. Um, and it was like the first movie I ever made, but I had one of my characters reading Fangoria because that's just what you did. Uh, here's one. I don't really count this as an Easter egg. I guess it is. It depends on how you uh, qualify that. But this is. Carter from Happy Death Day has a John Carpenter film poster. And like in his room, there's a poster for They Live. I mean, that's a, I guess that is a thing, but it's just, it's a post. It's like, how many movies do you watch? Like, uh, what was it? I think Stranger Things has The Thing, or they've had various posters up, and it's just, it's something people do. You know, if you want to show this guy's a movie nerd yeah. or a horror nerd, you give him some posters. I will say Carter doesn't seem the horror, like a horror guy, though. No, but They Live is just awesome. And finally, I'll just get out of here, but Bride of Chucky has several horror movie Easter eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has the Freddy glove, the Michael Myers mask, a chainsaw for, you know, Texas, and then a really cheap looking hockey mask. But yeah, I mean, those are Easter eggs, so there you go. Midsummer has a bunch of hidden faces in the background. I think most people know that now. Yeah, like in the trees where mm-hmm. you can see her dead sister. That's the one everybody always shows, but there's yeah. other faces. And I, again, I don't know if that's necessarily... That goes hand in hand with this one. There are subliminal demon faces all over the exorcist. Yeah, it's just it's a thing to heighten the scare or... To be used subliminally, but I don't know if that's necessarily an Easter egg. No. Like, is that that mentioning any other film? Or is that, you know, like an in-joke? Like an in-joke, no. It's just 
They're playing fast and loose with Easter egg there. Yeah. Well, like, okay, Alfred Hitchcock being outside Marion Crane's office in Psycho. Oh, yeah. That's just... He did that. Yeah. You know, he just he it cameoed in, in his movies. I, I don't, don't know, know if he if did it in Easter Egg. all of his movies, but he did it in a whole lot of them. Here's one in Hereditary, the cult is everywhere. And that is true. There's a lot of scenes in Hereditary that are very dark. and But if you're looking very closely, you can see the naked cultists just hanging out. Oh, in, yeah. In the woods and stuff, like around the house. If you bump up the brightness or the contrast, I forget which one, on your TV, you can really notice them. But because they purposely wanted to keep them mostly hidden, like in a regular theater or something, they're going to be hard to see. I, but see, that's Ari Aster again. Yeah. His attention to detail for stuff like that is incredible. He, I mean, Mike Flanagan's the same way. Like when, Well, that like goes with, with this one. Let me guess. It's going to be House on not House on Haunting Hill. Haunting of Hill House. Yes. And all the dead people in yeah. the background. There are ghosts all over that movie. Yeah. Always in the background, always in the shadow. If you do a drinking game spotting the ghosts, you're going to be dead uh, before probably even the first or maybe at least the first couple episodes. I mean, they're all over. And I love that. I wouldn't call that necessarily Easter eggs. They're just... In the background. Dude's wearing a... This is an obvious one, but in Dagon, he's wearing a Miskatonic sweatshirt. Yeah. But any HP Lovecraft, yes. they're going to have somebody wearing a Miskatonic shirt. But I guess... have a Mis- Miskatonic sticker on the back of the car. You know? that, I guess that is an Easter egg, because that is for the fans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't mention Miskatonic University in the movie. They don't even allude to anything like that. But that's like all us Lovecraft nerds go, huh, I see what you did there. So when I was making my short, Secret Chopper, guy who like produced the film with me and who also uh, did ran the camera, he had a Miskatonic University sticker on the back of his car. And... This guy that I knew that was there, and he had actually uh, brought... He had a car that I wanted to use in the movie. He was there. And he saw the sticker, and he's like, Oh, Miskatonic University. I've heard of that. <laughs> Where is that? And uh, and then my friend goes, Massachusetts. And he's like, Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've heard that before. And I'm like... <laughs> I had the like, same thing on the back of my truck. I had a Miskatonic University alumni sticker. <laughs> so, I mean, I, there was like four different times people would go, Oh, where's that at? And I go, oh, it's, it's in Arkham. <laughs> now, Where is that, Massachusetts? Oh, okay, yeah. Have you ever looked at all of the uh, all of your Facebook friends in their, like, about section. Yeah. Do you know how many people on our friends list? It's what we do. Including, <laughs> no, including myself. Okay. I also went to Miskatonic University. If you're going to go like to a school, why not go to the best school? That is the most common university yes. ever. <laughs> because everybody we know went to Miskatonic <laughs> University. Here's one that is... Again, not necessarily an Easter egg, but it was a hidden thing. And I remember I spotted it in the theater while we were watching this movie. I remember leaning over to you going, look, did you see it? Oh, are you talking about Valak? Yeah. I knew it. In The Conjuring 2, Valak's name is hidden throughout the movie. Yeah. And it is. And and you did. You did notice that. I mean, because it was just obvious. There's random letters on the wall in the kitchen. And then in the library, there's these things like... I guess they're supposed to be bookends, but 
they spelled the same thing twice. And I'm like, okay, this is done on purpose. <laughs> uh, here's one. Uh, Kurt Russell's shirt from Big Trouble in Little China is hanging on the wall and death proof. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Of course, everyone knows that Janet Lee's car in H2O was the same car that she drove in Psycho. Oh, yeah. Um, one mostly for the gamers, I guess, although they did make a movie based on it. It's Silent Hill. And the school is a reference to Village of the Damned because it's called Midwich Elementary School. I was That was the next one I was going to bring up. And I never noticed that. I did. Is that in the the game or the movie? Yes, it's in game two. Well, here's another thing. All the streets in the video game are named after horror writers. There's like a Block Avenue. There's a King Street. There's, I mean, you name it and they got a street about it. So they were obviously having fun. I don't know if they carried that over to the movies, but at least in the very first and probably second video games... There's horror author names all over. The I think people pick this out, too. I mean, if you're a horror fan, some stuff just sticks out. But the Elm Street house is in the Rise of Leslie, Leslie Vernon. Yeah. Um, and it's the scene where Kane Hodder is, like, walking into a house, and he kind of turns around. And, but it's the Elm Street house. That yeah, so that's a into. double Easter egg. you got yeah. Jason going into Freddy's house. Yeah. This one I always liked. Uh, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright play zombies in Land of the Dead. Yeah, and do you know how that came about? I know George liked their movie. Yeah, he liked Shaun of the Dead so much that he offered them those roles, which I love because it was because of that that uh, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright came to the premiere of Land of the Dead in Pittsburgh, where I was there. I was covering it. Oh, that's cool. And so I got to meet Simon Pegg because of that. And a like kind of thing. If you're not a reader, you may not really get this. But if you do like books, specifically if you like splatterpunk books, two of the best splatterpunks out there are John Skip and Craig Spector. And they appear in Night of the Living Dead, 1990. They're two of the zombies. That's right. You told me that. Mm -hmm. And that's funny because I always thought it was one guy and his name was Skip Inspector. (laughs) (laughs) Here's one that most people know, horror fans at least do. Sam Raimi's car from The Evil Dead. It pretty much shows up in nearly all of his movies. Now, I'm sure there's some that it hasn't, but... I mean, mean, it's even in Spider-Man. It's in Spider-Man. It's in Simple Plan. It's in, I think... Oh, what the It's hell? in Drag Me to Hell. Drag Me to Hell. So, hell, it's in the Evil Dead remake. Yeah. So, he loves putting that old car around. A 1973 Oldsmobile Delta 88. And I went to high school with a, with a guy who drove that exact car. Not the exact one. I mean, not the car from the movies, but he had the same car. Here's one everybody should know. On Halloween's purpose. Dr. Loomis is an homage to Psycho. Yeah, Sam Loomis. But that's also like saying Billy Loomis from Scream is an homage to Halloween. Or maybe well, they're is. all one big family. They're one big family weird tree. Family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another one everybody should know. Evil Dead's Necronomicon shows up and Jason goes to hell. Yeah, so does the crate from isn't doesn't the crate from Creep Show also isn't it in the basement? I don't know if it's actually from Creep Show because I think it's from Antarctica. I can't remember if he's from Antarctica. 
he being Fluffy, the monster in Creepshow, yeah. or is he from... But the name on the side of the box always gave me giggling fits because it's Julie Carpenter. Jay Carpenter. So that could also be a Thing reference. Jay oh, Carpenter from true, Antarctica. Yeah. See, I always thought it was a fluffy reference because... It's a crate. It's yeah. A, yeah. Well, I mean, and it says Antarctica. And then the in Creepshow, it says Antarctica. Here's one. A line from 2001, A Space Odyssey, appears in American Werewolf in London. See you next Wednesday. Yep. But also, Landis loves that yeah, joke. Yeah, he uses that in a lot of his movies. Yeah, because... Maybe if you're a delicate person and you're not a big potty mouth and all that, you may not know what See You Next Tuesday is. I just... See You Next Tuesday. I think people know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) But just in case they don't. So yeah, he put... He loves having uh, See You Next Wednesday. Yeah, and he used it in several movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, this is just silly. It depends on how crazy you are about conspiracy theories, but supposedly hidden messages in The Shining are allegedly a confession from Stanley Kubrick about how he faked the moon Yeah, landing. yeah. I just watched Room 237 and... and but it's also it's about... about everything. About the Native American plight. And it's also about Nazis and how they killed people. And it's also about Minotaurs. And it's also about, I mean, Jesus Christ, that movie is about everything. Everything. I feel like we were watching something the other day and I was like, ah! But I don't remember what it was. Cool story, bro. In The Mist, the main character, played by Thomas Jane, is an artist, and he makes book covers or movie covers. I forget which one. but uh, he's, Movie posters. That's it. That's what I mean. But he's painting one for Stephen King's The Dark Tower. There's also The Thing. But there. there's also The Thing in there, and that's because both of those were done by the same artist. I want to say Drew Stanslin? I know his first name's Drew. I don't know... Stanslin, something like that. You know how I am with names. But yeah, these are all paintings he did. So as like an in-joke, they brought him in for the movie The Mist. It's not really, it's not a movie, but I always thought it was cool how The Walking Dead would bring in specific zombies. Those I always do like. And I th- those are straight up Easter eggs. Yeah. Um, like there was the cover zombie from Dawn of the Dead. Yep. The one in the flannel shirt. He was in there. Bub was in one Bub episode. Bub was in there. The Tar, the Man, tar Man was in was there. In an episode. Um, the one zombie from Dawn who gets a machete in the head. He's in there. Uh, the zombie from Tales from the Crypt. He was played by Peter Cushing. In the one Valentine yes, episode. Yes, He's in there. I mean, they did it a lot. And I love that. Oh, there's a zombie in there that a lot of people were thinking was a reference to Night of the Comet. Because he looks like that very first guy. Remember when she goes outside the very first time? The guy she, with the, like, hat. the, the hat? Yeah. yeah. And there's a zombie in The Walking Dead that looks a lot like him. So I think that's a reference. And I love that. I mean... I used to love The Walking Dead show. I really didn't like it as it wore on and on and on and on. I think you gave up around season eight. Yeah, that sounds about right. Maybe even before that. 
But maybe I, seven. I, I do love all their little nods and winks to famous zombies from Filmland. Yeah, and that stuff. Oh, uh, there. Remember the uh, the rifle zombie from yeah. the end of Dawn. He was in there too. I think that that stuff that is in there strictly for horror fans. Specifically yes. zombie fans, you know, and I used to love that, particularly since The Walking Dead was so well known. I mean, everyone was watching The Walking Dead, horror fan or yeah. not. Everybody watched that show. And when I would watch it and I would see stuff like that, it would tickle me because I'm like, there are so many people out there who have no idea that this is a thing. Mm-hmm. I want to say at one point, and it was never confirmed... But I swear, I don't know if you remember in Land of the Dead, there is, uh, and since Greg Nicotero did the, 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 did the effects for Land, then it would make sense. But there was um, sort of like a, a bride zombie at one point. She was like a really desiccated, okay. corpsey bride. And uh, I, I thought I spotted her in an episode of The Walking Dead. Really? That, but cool. it was never. I was never able to confirm it, but I swear that that's what that was. Well, speaking of Land of the Dead, the big one is Tom Savini. Mm-hmm. It's his character. What was his name? Blade from Dawn. From Dawn. Maybe. Yeah, I think. Or you're maybe right. I think maybe machete. machete or something like that. But anyways, he's in Land of the Dead, so I always like that. And I'm, he has confirmed. Well, yeah, that it is. That it is, in well, fact, that's the an, same character. There's no way it could not have been. Well, it could have just been like a nod to it. But he is confirming, he has confirmed that it is the the same character, which I love. Another one I always loved. This was a thing in comic book form before this, but it was a precursor to the films. And that's the alien skull in the trophy room of the Predators yeah, from Predator 2. Yeah, I like II. that one. And... There was a comic book, Alien vs. Predator, at the time. Because I remember I saw this in a theater. I went, ah! And I was like, man, I hope they... Because the comic book is nothing like the movie we got. Which sucks. If they had made the comic book into the movie, it would have been so much damn better. But I remember thinking, wow, I hope they make that. Because it reminded me, oh yeah, they're both owned by the same, you know, company. The same production house. So yeah, they could have easily made it. There's one that I thought of... <laughs> and this has never been confirmed that I heard, but I noticed it when I saw it at the theater. And when we watched it this past Valentine's Day, it caught my ear again. And that is in the um, the My Bloody Valentine remake. At the very beginning, there are two guys that get killed. One's named one is named Jason, and the other one is named Michael. Uh, yeah, that was probably a thing. I've never seen anyone outright define you know that, but I don't, I don't know how it could go any other way. Like, I think clearly that was them trying to give a little nudge in the ribs. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's basically all I got. Most yeah. of these, I'm sure people have already heard yeah, of. Yeah, that's the that. unfortunate thing, is I was hoping to find something that I didn't already know about. There and were a couple a few, of these, yeah. you know, a couple of these I wasn't aware of, but the vast majority of them I think everybody already knows. But what it does do is give the opportunity for people out there to tell us some that we missed or that maybe are lesser known because that'd be cool because yeah. I love learning about stuff like that or, you know, picking out. I get so excited when I pick out stuff like that when, yeah. I'm, when I'm watching movies. So if there's any out there that you guys particularly love and you don't hear talked about a lot or whatever, then, and, you know, when I was going through this 
like looking for stuff. There were some that I outright just ignored because they're so everybody talks about them. But if you have any out there that you don't hear talked about as much, but you think are really cool, particularly maybe from some older movies, because people do that a lot now. But I think so, like if there were some from like really older movies that yeah. nobody would necessarily pick up on, that'd be cool. Yeah, there were nods and winks from the start of Hollywood, but it is something that has become much more of a thing in modern days. Well, now it's much easier to spot stuff like that because we have the ability to watch movies over and over yes. again, you know, and pause and whatever. So there could have been a whole lot that people just missed because they didn't have the opportunity to see them as often. Yeah, that is a thing. I mean, back then you watched a movie when it was at the theater you never saw it again unless they re-released it to a theater. I mean, hell, in the really early days, there was no even television. I just thought that would be a fun little discussion for yeah. Easter Sunday. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And like I said, if there's any that you want to bring out, talk about, mention, um, throw it on the group page, or send us a message. And we will see you in the next segment coming up. We're still going through the seas for Attack of the Colossal Collection. Attack of the Colossal Collection. 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 Okay, it is time for Attack of the Colossal Collection. And Brian, what are we starting with? Okay, we're picking up with Chasing Amy from 1997. This is a Kevin Smith film. And it's probably his most, or at least his first serious film. You know, before this, he had Clerks, which is just straight-up comedy. Then he had Mallrats, which is just straight-up comedy. This is a comedy, too, but there's also a lot of drama, a lot more to the story than just telling dick and fart jokes. Yeah, I think he was actually trying to tell... Well, and this is based on someone from his life. Supposedly, yeah, it's based on his story where... He met a girl, they were boyfriend-girlfriend, but she was far more sexually experienced than he was, and he was intimidated by that. So his, like, jealousy, like... Drove ain't, them apart. Yeah, but yeah. it's, like, jealous of what happened in the past. So he could never get it right in his head, and then it ended up fucking up the relationship. Eventually, supposedly, he matured and he realized what he did, so he made this movie, which is kind of like the same thing. It also has the idea that in order to, quote, fix, unquote, a lesbian, all she needs is some serious deep dickin'. (laughs) Now, this movie got a lot of shit. It got a lot of love for, hey, you know, it's a decent movie, and, you know, one of the main characters gay. There's also a gay uh, supporting character in here, so good, good on you. And to Kevin Smith's credit, I've heard him say numerous times, he has a brother who's gay, so he's definitely not homophobic but there were some people out there especially members of the lesbian community who took offense to the idea that someone could be a lesbian and then some guy comes around and he's awesome and he has a big dick and suddenly she's fixed and cured and well i can understand taking offense to that yeah you know i mean it it is straight up offensive you're basically saying that the person that you are it's wrong, but we can fix that. Yeah. You know, and that's bullshit. But even though there are a lot of wrong-headed things 
about this film. I think that well, like, I in the say- end, it comes around that, I mean, that's that was the way that, you know, the, the characters thought. But in the end, it doesn't. Well, I will say this uh, in defense of Smith, I guess. I don't think technically she would be a lesbian. She started off liking boys, then she liked girls, then she liked boys, then she goes back to girls. And she says something to like, look, you know, gender never mattered to me. I was just looking for love. So if anything, she could be bisexual. And yeah, she could, you know, just be open to whatever comes her way as long as there's love involved. Yeah. She might just identify as lesbian because that was a thing. You know, there were gay people, there were lesbians. And yes, there were bi people, but it would... In 1997, uh, there weren't that many. Or if they were, they were I mean, more in the closet. I mean, there were, but well, yeah. it, it wasn't as openly discussed as no, it is we now. were just getting to the point where somebody could say, hey, I'm a lesbian, or I'm gay, and we'd be, yeah, okay. You know, bisexual is a whole new thing. <laughs> you know, we weren't ready for that yet. Well, we weren't that far removed from Ellen having all of her sponsors pulled yeah. out of her show because she was an openly gay main character, which is just fucking crazy to think that that happened not only in our lifetime but in our adult lifetime that uh but anyway that there are a lot of good things about this movie i love the performance i think it's funny movie. as hell it's really funny i mean i'm a big fan of kevin smith at least his earlier stuff the stuff he's done more recently i think kind of sucks to be perfectly honest i hate to say that because he used to be an idol of mine but i think he's lost the way but whatever you know different tastes but this is a just, it's a damn good movie. It's funny as hell. Uh, ben Affleck's in it. I know he's like Tom Cruise. People just seem to love to hate the guy. I don't have a problem with him. Nah, I don't particularly have a problem with him. I don't, you know, particularly like him. Like, I don't go, oh, hell yeah, it's Ben Affleck. But neither do I go, oh, it's Ben Affleck. I don't want to watch that. But a lot of people do. Joey Lauren Adams plays the female love interest. And Jason Lee is Ben Affleck's roommate and best friend, and they work on a comic book together. And he is just awesome. He steals a show whenever he's on screen. He does, but he's the one that has the the majority of the wrong-headed ideas yeah. in this film. Well, that's and then just there's he, that whole... I mean, he has this whole jealousy thing going uh-huh. on, you know, when his friend gets involved with this other girl. Seriously then, involved, because he's never been serious before. Right. You know, he's had girlfriends, but they've been like, you know, a couple night stands, that kind of thing. But here, he's really in love, and he knows that, and yeah, he feels threatened by that. So, it's a very good film, it's well written, it's well made, and it does show that Kevin Smith can do more than just, you know, stink palm jokes and stuff like that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I really like it, and... uh, you like it too. We both gave it a four out of five. Yeah. I was really happy to, to see this again. This was one that I, you know, watched. I went to see it when it came out. And then I've seen it a couple times since, but not in a very long time. I mean, maybe even 20 years. Yeah. I mean, it's been a very long time since I've seen that film. Well, so I was happy to revisit it. Okay. Yeah. I don't know when the last time I saw it before this. It's been a minute, but, uh. Yeah, it was a good But it's kind of funny, because as I'm watching it now, you know, all these years later, like 25 years after the fact, and, you know, they're saying some of the the things they said or whatever, and I'm just like, oh, (laughs) you know. Well, it's definitely, it's it's aged awkwardly. Right. (laughs) 
But I do think the movie's heart is in the right place. No, that's what I was going to say is if you if you take it for what it was at the time for what he was intending at the time, then I think you can pull what his intent was out of it. You know, it, yeah. it, it, there's nothing malicious about it. It's not mean spirited. at Well, all, that's like know? some of the stuff in Kentucky fried movie. One of my favorite comedies of all time. It's an old movie. It was made in the seventies. I want to say early seventies. No, and, I think it was like 78 or 79. Well, no, cause that's when airplane came out and this is before airplane. Mm-hmm. Maybe mid seventy. I don't know. But uh, it has some jokes in there that would not fly today. But I do get the sense, honestly, that I don't think they're mean-spirited. In other words, they're laughing at the absurdity of certain stereotypes. Right, right. But they're not laughing at the people those stereotypes are pointed at. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, hell, we just watched Revenge of the Nerds for Fun yeah. Friday a few weeks ago, which was my pick. One of my all-time favorite comedies ever. And, you know, <laughs> now you watch that and Lewis basically rapes this girl yeah. uh, because well, and that's he a lot tricks of, her into having sex with him. A lot of people, you know, when I posted about it, are like, oh, I love this movie. But I just, I can't get over that rape scene. And I'm thinking, ah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I get it. At, by the letter of the law, by everything that's, you know, decent, no, decent <laughs> known, we can agree upon, he did a shitty thing by tricking her into fucking him. But when it's over, she likes it, and they become boyfriend and girlfriend. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's like an unrequited love type thing. I don't know. It's not the kind of... That's not the kind of movie that you look forward to uh Yeah, I'm not to trying to get my from, morals you know, from... Exactly. No, it's just... It's just funny. Yes. It's only intended to be funny. And you know what? I can deal with that. And I watch it now. I still fucking love that movie. It's it so is still I. one of my all-time favorite comedies. And, you know, panty raids be damned. I don't care. Like, you know, it just, it's funny as funny. So, anyway. Uh, what's next? We now go to a movie we've already covered long ago when we were doing the ABCs and only the ABCs. In fact, this was one of our C picks. I want to say Dave picked this out. And this is Cheerleader Camp from 1988. It's and got it, your girl. Yeah, well, of course, Lucinda Dickey is awesome in this. And so is Betsy Russell. It does have Leaf Garrett as well. So, you know, yay for that. Playing like the oldest looking teenager ever. <laughs> and it's a straight up 80s slasher. No thrills, really. But it's just fun and i mean i will always give the benefit to an 80 slasher that is right in my wheelhouse it hits me in the heart so even when they're not great i still usually end up liking them well i think i said on the last show you gotta fuck up real bad to make me not enjoy a slasher yes and this one doesn't fuck up at all i mean it's it's a really it's a really fun movie and it's all about uh, a group of Kids, I say kids, uh, they're easily in their 20s. I think they're in college, but even still, there's some people that do not look college age in this. Yeah, they go to, um, well, you get what what's on the tin. They go to cheerleader camp, yeah. but it's also mascots and they have male cheerleaders. So it's just like, which is more college-y. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have male cheerleaders when I was in no. high school, but we did in college. So, And uh, there is an interesting like psych psychological thing going on mm-hmm. you know with some 
are they dream sequences? Are they memories? Are they what's going on? You know, there's a little bit of a mystery there, which yeah. is kind of cool. Well, there's also a straight up mystery as who's doing the killing. Yeah. Because, yeah, surprise, it's a slasher. So somebody's killing the contestants at this cheerleading camp or this cheerleading contest, I guess it is. And you don't know who's doing it, but one by one, people are getting killed. Meanwhile, you get all the cheerleaders acting goofy and silly and super horny and trying to get laid. And, you know, it's just, it's classic 80s you slasher. terrible 80s rap. Oh, that's awesome. Where back then, whenever people rapped in movies or on TV, they had exactly the same beat. There was... It always reminds me of... It was always the same. Like Tom Hanks... And Dan Aykroyd doing the uh, yeah the the uh, the devil rap and uh, oh what the hell Dragnet Dragnet yeah hey there copper Mr Crime Stopper yeah it's, it's <laughs> what is wrong with what we're doing it's always the same <laughs> you all they do is take that and then just change the words it's definitely white boy rap yeah. it is like the most basic rhyming thing they can come up with and it just put some you know like hip hop beatbox music in the background they go there we go we're rapping that's what kids are into now right yeah it's like here comes bunny she looks funny <laughs> it's really bad but she'll steal your heart but not your money that's a line from yeah, that yeah. movie <laughs> but yeah it is just it's it's fun it's funny, it's got great people, good kills, nice little mystery, and it's just, it's 80s as all hell, so. You give it a 4 out of 5, and me, I give it a 4.5 out aren't of 5. aren't you fancy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next up we have Cherry Falls from 2000, and this is Brittany Murphy, Michael Bean, Gabriel Mann, and Jay Moore. What the, what the hell ever happened to Jay Moore? Yeah, he was a thing for a minute. But this little slasher... The long MIA slasher. This was one that you heard about it coming out for a long time, and then it it just... It could never get the distribution. I want to say it had a small release in Europe somewhere, but it never came out here. Not on DVD, not on VHS, not nothing. Until recently, by that I mean a couple years ago. Is it Scream Factory? Finally put that out? Well, it actually got the first yeah, time. Screen. Yeah, the first time you were able to see it here, it um, I think it premiered on like the Sci Fi channel. That or something sounds like right, that. yeah. And which was bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but in this, they kind of try to turn the whole slasher trope on its head where instead of killing people who are having sex, this Because those are the rules! <laughs> this killer goes Hate after... that stupid shit. I know you do. Oh, by the way, we were just, as an aside, we watched Prom Night the other night, just for the hell of it. It was my pick. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a girl in there who is, throughout the whole movie... She's a virgin, she's a virgin, she's a virgin. She stays a virgin. She stays a virgin. And she still gets killed. And she gets killed. So. Mind you, they name-checked Prom Night in Scream. In Scream, exactly. But I guess they had their eyes closed during that That's part. even the one where he's like, it's a very simple yeah. formula. You know, and I'm like, yeah, one that you apparently didn't pay attention to. <laughs> uh, anyway, in uh, Cherry Falls, there is a mystery. And... Uh, who you know? Who is killing these people? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, then going they have around... this whole bit where they decide they're going to have like a school wide orgy, orgy yeah. to keep from getting killed. Because yeah, they're only killing virgins, and then they carve into their leg the word virgin when they you know they'll kill the guy straight out, 
but the girl they'll kill and then carve virgin on her leg. There is a and there's a reason for it and yes. there's a whole mystery and I actually like the mystery there. It's got that sins from the past coming back to catch up with you mm-hmm. type of vibe that I really like when uh, it comes very, to slashers. That's very classic slasher, you know, which I enjoy. Uh, unfortunately, the, it was cut to shit. It is. The kills, uh, why I think are fun, they're not all that bloody or gory. They're still good, but they could have been so much better. I have warmed to this movie over the years a little bit. When, it, when I first saw it, Years and years and years and years ago, I yeah, didn't, I didn't really love it. I had to get a bootleg copy of it somewhere. I forget where, but I always liked it. I thought it was fine. But as the years gone by and I've watched it again and again, I've liked it more. Yeah, I think it's more than fine. I think it's you know very solid. Yeah, the more I see it, the more I like it. If the only thing, uh, the only gripe I have about it is the lack of real blood and gore. But again, eh. I mean, Prom Night doesn't have tons of blood and gore. That's a great movie. I always liked Terror Train. That has some very neutered kills. So, I mean, sadly, that was the thing back in the slasher heyday. Yeah, this one, of course, is post-Scream. So that you get, you know, a lot of pretty people that you know. Yeah. And uh, it looks slick and... No nudity. Um... Yeah, for a movie about... I know! For, <laughs> about, all about sex, there's no nudity. Now, but. supposedly, I saw, like, one of the extras on this Blu-ray, which I do highly recommend. It's from Scream Factory, like I said. But they were doing some, like, you know, hey, remember this movie with various creators. And they were talking to, I think, the director. And he was like, you know, I had a lot more stuff in this movie. I had a lot more blood. I had a lot more sex. That was the whole idea behind this movie. Unfortunately, none of that got through. Yeah. So, but even with this truncated version, Virgin, eh, we both gave it a four out of five. Yeah. So it's good. It's a, it's a highly decent modern slasher. Gee, what's this obscure movie I've never heard of? Yeah. Next we go to another classic it's Child's Play from 1988. And we don't have all the Child's Play one after another after this one because I'm not a huge fan of Child's Play 2 or 3. I don't really like Seed of Chucky or even... Bride. Bride. Bride, I think, is kind of fun, but I'm still not crazy about it. I really didn't get back into the Child's Play movies until the the Return of Chucky one, whatever one that is. But that's called Cult of Chucky or Curse of Chucky. Curse of Chucky and then Cult of Chucky. Yeah. So those are in our C's. We just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. But this is uh, the original. And why don't you tell us about it? Everybody knows. (laughs) The uh, mom from Seventh Heaven wants to buy a birthday present for her son. And he's obsessed with good guys. So she can't afford to go buy a good guy doll. But she... Uh, is told through about a, you know, from a friend of hers about a peddler who is selling one that he picked up from a burned-out toy store, so she buys that. It just so happens that that particular good guy doll happens to contain the soul of the Lake Shore Strangler, yeah, uh, or Charles Lee Ray, who has transferred his soul via voodoo magic into, or I guess it would be hoodoo if it's magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing. Uh, um, into hi- 
That is... I know. <laughs> coming out of your mouth. No. I'm going to get all the voodoo people. Well, I mean, he actually does intone the voodoo rites. Um, hoodoo seems to be just divorced of all the it's religious all of connotations. The religious stuff. Yeah. It's strictly... Yeah. He right. calls upon Dumbala, so that's voodoo. Yeah, you're correct. You're correct. So he pulls the... Uh, uses voodoo to transfer his soul into this doll. And then in order to become human again, he has to take over the body of the first person that he revealed himself to, which happens to be... Little six-year-old um, Andy. Andy. And so he spins the movie killing people and trying to uh, get into Andy. And, of course, Andy actually... There's actually a really... I forget until I watch it again every time how traumatic that must be for Andy... <laughs> yeah. For his babysitter to get killed, but then he gets accused of it, and they like hold him, mm -hmm. and they're interrogating him, and the kid is terrified. I like the I one like, part where he's like, "He's coming to get me," yeah. and he just—he he sounds like he's freaking the fuck out. He is. I mean, <laughs> honestly, he did a really good yeah. job, you know. So, and this is um, the original, which also. To this day is my favorite Easily. of the Child's Play films. Um, There's other good ones, but this is the best. Also, I would like to point out that this was a very late entry into Slashers. Oh, and yeah. for it to come in in 88 and make such an impact that it then went on to have the legacy and the franchise that it does. Because now there's also been the TV show, oh, yeah. which we both really liked. Yeah. And then, you know, collectibles and I mean, it's huge. And so I some think people that's have Chucky as their favorite of the, you know, horror villains and yeah. all that. Yeah. Um, He's always featured like on the, on t-shirts and stuff. When you have the icons, uh, he's always part of it. Yeah. And I got to, you know, give credit where credit's due. Uh, this was directed by Tom Holland and partially written by him. He's the guy who directed, or I'm sorry, I think he, I don't know if he directed, but I know he wrote Psycho 2. He's Fright also Night. the guy who directed and wrote Fright Night. The guy's seriously good. Oh, um, oh, what's that Cicada movie? Oh, yeah, Beast Within. Beast Within, yeah. yeah. So the guy, he, he puts out some good shit, and this is one of them. In fact, it's so good, we both give it a five out of five. Yay. And so, like I said, we're now jumping ahead a bit, because the other sequels we have are kind of all over the place. With the exception of this one, because it's not a sequel, it's a remake. It's Child's Play from 2019. And I gotta say, I like this movie much more than I ever thought I would. I really like it. I I think that oh I mean, we forgot to mention I I forgot to mention Brad Dourif and oh, obviously yeah. as the iconic voice yes. of Chucky, but here in the remake it's done by another iconic voice actor who didn't start out as voice actor but that he has become legendary yes. in animated especially for his Joker exactly and that's Mark Hamill and I gotta say I do like Brad Dourif more. He will always be Chucky to me, but I think Mark Hamill does a damn good job here. This he is does. one of these rare remakes that, on paper, I really shouldn't like it, because it's so different from the original. But at the end of the day, I do like it. I think that sometimes that's what you need. I yeah. think sometimes you need a remake to go in a very different direction, Yeah, uh, which 
is why I love the Suspiria remake so much. Oh, good call. You know? Yeah. So this one, it also has the little boy from that. What's that? That the vi- the video, that song, the Friday the 13th song. Oh, uh, wolves! Wolf, something about wolves. Wolfie's all right. Or Wolfie's something all like right. That. Yeah, is the name of the band. Yeah, and the song is something. God, I love that song. Uh, it's too. all about Friday Five. <laughs> yeah, though, awesome. but anyway, that's where we first saw that kid. And then when this movie came out, I was like, "Look, it's that kid from the video." But um, Wolfie's doing fine. Isn't that the name of the? I'm looking it up right now. Continue talking. Uh, Anyway, in this one, though, there's no voodoo, there's no serial killer, there's nothing like that. There is a disgruntled line worker who... Ha! You're right. Wolfie's just fine. Oh, Wolfie's and just fine. And, of course, fine. the song is called A New Beginning. Get oh, it? yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you guys haven't seen that video, check it out. It's, it's cool really video. cool. But um, uh, there's a disgruntled line worker in the toy factory who... Yeah, it's like every horror story the... you've ever heard about, like, the poor people in China being forced to make this stuff. Yeah. Like, he has to work 12 hours nonstop, can't take a piss break. And it's kind of like Amazon. And, uh, so he gets upset and he programs some malicious code in it. He sets it to evil. Yeah. So this isn't supernatural, this is all technological based. Yeah, and they do... The only thing I, I wish is that they had done a little bit more with the whole, um like i home thing yeah you know? they, they they could have because the whole thing is based around like ai technology and um, wi-fi and, and all the yeah. stuff we have now he can control like everything Alexas yeah. and stuff like that but um i think they could have it you know put that put more of that yeah into the there's story, a little bit of that in here cool, but but i really enjoy it i think chucky is adorable there's actually a scene where he's trying to be scary. To be, he's trying to get Chucky to be scary. Ah. He's like, no, you're still cute. You know, and he is. I think he's adorable. But in this one, he is only trying to make Andy. Is his name still Andy? You know, I don't remember, but we'll go with that. Anyway, he's only trying to make him happy. He wants to do things to make him happy. So if he sees that, if Chucky sees that he is, uh, like, you know, mad at someone, then he'll do something to to fix it. And, uh, you know, he's, it's, he's misguided, but he's not evil. Like, whereas the original Chucky... Charles Lee Ray is evil. This Chucky isn't evil. He just doesn't know what else to do. It's like when they have those AI bots and you try to try to teach him English and then give it like give him like 15 minutes with the internet and they're and talking about Hitler. And then he becomes a Nazi. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> it's just, you know, that sort of thing. But I really, really enjoy it. Also, yeah. they used practical effects for Chucky in that. And one of the biggest complaints I saw when that movie came out was like, oh, the CGI looks terrible. Well, no, it doesn't because it's practical. And there's actually a whole video that you can find on YouTube that is an extra from the Blu-ray that shows you exactly what all they went through to bring Chucky to life. Mm. And they used very very little they did their work yes yeah. yeah they did they put the work in and i think it's i i think it came out better for it what did we rate that one we both gave it a four out of five makes sense we now go to admittedly a jamie movie but but it's a good one it's a good one it is a movie i have seen before because it was on hbo all the damn time 
But uh, it's Children of a Lesser God from 1986. Uh, what do you got to say about this one? No, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a legendary film. At least it was back then, anyway. It got Very Oscar-baity. Like, exactly. Um, William Hurt is a teacher, and he gets a job at a school for the deaf. And Marley Matlin who apparently is like Hollywood's only deaf actress. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at least back then. There are yeah. more now. But back then, if you had a deaf character, Marley Matlin yeah. would play your character. But she is a student. And uh, it's a love story. It's a love story, but it also is about more than that. I mean, it's about William Hurt learning how to... Uh, be an effective teacher and then he ends up like fighting against the system because the administrators at this school you know they don't like his maverick ways of well teaching. they don't want to really challenge the kids they no. want to play it safe they want to because you know them you they're know. deaf so we got to be we got to be so you know sincere and we got to worry about their feelings we can't make them feel bad oh you know you're you're making them feel bad by trying to challenge them to be better and we I, that is such a condescending bullshit attitude it is it is and it's insulting yes you know and he is like no they're humans yeah. you know they're intelligent they're they, liking what i'm doing yeah so let it's me not like i'm being mean it. to him or anything um he he does cool things like uh, he, he teaches them how to sing yeah and initially and they do a program and uh, oh my god it's amazing when they boomerang do that. Rang, and, rang. Uh, yeah <laughs> But yeah, originally he was just supposed to teach him to helpfully kind of talk. But he goes up and beyond that, and yeah, he gets a bunch of shit for it. Now granted, he's also sleeping with somebody from, you know, who has a pile of issues. Yeah, not and really... I guess she's not one of his students. She's a, She used to be a student yeah, there, now but she's now a she, janitor. she works there. Yeah. But, so he's not, like, banging a student. But, I don't know. Because that would be awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I really like it. It is. It's a good movie. I mean, it's a love story and a drama and a bit of a comedy at times, yeah. but it's really good. Yeah. You give it a five out of five. Yeah. Not surprised. I give it a four out of five. Yay. That should be surprising. It is. <laughs> well, I was actually very pleasantly surprised that you enjoyed it as much as you did because when we got to that movie in the collection, you you were all you know. Ugh. Well, just. Some movies I watched a hundred times because they were on HBO, and I learned love. This is one movie, I don't know, I liked it, but I was just like, God, play something else. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, that reminds me of, I don't know if I've ever told this story, but when I was in college, we had um, this one channel called Housing 12, and it's it was a our local college channel, but they would pick two movies every week and they would play those movies nonstop, just constantly just alternating the two of them basically and up oh, basically and uh <laughs> everybody I, drink <laughs> i got strep throat one time and it was such a bad case of strep throat i mean it was like the i've it was awful like i couldn't swallow at all i was drooling i couldn't eat that's hot no i know <laughs> and I was quarantined to my dorm room, and my roommate even moved out. She moved down the hall for a solid week. I was in my dorm room all by myself. I couldn't go to class, but all I could do was watch 
Housing 12. And they had the two movies they were running that week were A River Runs Through It <laughs> and Basic Instinct. <laughs> and I loved Basic Instinct before, yeah. before that, but... I had never seen A River Runs Through It until then. And I must have watched that movie like eight <laughs> times over the week because I had nothing else to do. So, Did you end up crap. liking it? No, I do like it. It's a good movie, but I I swore I would never want to see it again after that. I think that's a, if I remember correctly, I think it's a decent movie, a good movie. I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> no, it's just one of those you don't need, once, especially once you've seen it as yeah. many times as I have, you really don't need to watch it again. But... I don't know, maybe down the road at some point I'll see it again, but it is a good movie. If anybody's mm. never seen it, it's good. I just, damn. <laughs> On to the next one. Yay! And why don't you go ahead and talk all about this, because I know you're dying to. Yeah. Next we have Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things from 1972, which we, which you guys will uh, recognize if you listen to the last show. It was on my list of top 10 non-Romero zombie movies. And it was not on mine. And that is a shame. <laughs> Shout out to Debbie Lynn, who also loves this movie. Thank you so much. This is Alan Ormsby. Sounds like a 70s this... jazz musician. Alan Ormsby? Yeah, the well, Alan I mean, Ormsby band. Well, he was in the 70s, and he also um, worked with Bob Clark. Yeah. So, anyway, it's a zombie movie um, about a troupe, an acting troupe, who go to this little island. I'm guessing it's off the coast of New York. They're actors. I And they uh, seem very New York. Yeah, so I don't remember if they actually say or not, but I'm pretty sure it's off. It's somewhere off New York. And this is little island, and it's cemetery. Like, there's nothing on this island but a cemetery, it seems. And they're trying to... Uh, Alan wants to perform this ritual to get Satan to give him the power to bring the dead to life. And he's just fucking around. But it actually ends up working. And so then you get, you know, some zombie munching. And it's cheap. It is cheap. But I like the look of the zombies. I like the look of the island. I think it's very scary. I really do. And it leans into one of those, like, Texas Chainsaw soundtracks where it's not really music. It's more like... Ambient noise noises and stuff. Yeah. And uh, it always makes me anxious. The sounds make me anxious. And the the zombies, I think, are really scary. And so that's one that uh, I... I think I said it on the last show. If I watch it by myself, I won't be able to sleep. I Because it's, to me, that scary. It's just so atmospheric. I love it. And some of the performances are a little over the top, and the acting is a little wonky here and there, but it's fun. And I just, I have a very, very special place in my heart for this movie. No, I gotta say, while it didn't make my top ten list, I do like this movie a lot. It's very cheap, it's very low budget, but it's done with some love and some care. But the thing for me is, when I was a kid, we had the chiller double feature. Yeah. It would come on channel 20. It was, you know, they would play two horror movies back to back. Thus, the double feature. But they always started off playing music from Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. <laughs> and... Images from this movie. You showed me that. Yeah. You actually went on YouTube and found the intro and showed it to me specifically because of this movie. But yeah, I, I dig it. It's a decent flick. And you give it a five out of five. Yeah, of course. I do. 
I give it a 4 out of 5. Why don't you go ahead and take the next one, because this is another oh-so-you movie. It is, and this is The Children from 1980, and... More zombies, kinda. Kinda. Not really, uh, but... This one I saw at the drive-in when it came out, and it's one of those movies that you know how you see it when you're really young. I mean, because I was six, you know, but it's stuck in my head, and it's very specific images from the movie stuck in my head. And for years and years and years, I couldn't find it. I, I I knew what it was called, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was because it never, it didn't get a release. So when DVDs were first a thing, I got a bootleg copy of this from Japan, along with Alligator and Squirm, all before they got official U.S. releases. And I was so excited to see this movie again. I still love it. Uh... It's this group of kids, they're on a school bus, they're coming home, and they pass through this weird yellow cloud. Then all of their fingernails turn black, and then they can, I guess it's kind of like electrocuting you when they touch you. Or I think it's you. supposed to be radiation. That's what I always took it as, because I think it comes from some big power plant looking thing, and yeah. it's a, a big nasty yellow cloud. I think it's trying to to put in some environmental horror. Yeah, I think it's there. just toxic stuff. You know, like a leak. Like, this is what we're doing, yeah. and, you know, to our children. And it only affects the children. And then the children, you know, kill their parents. But I always liked that premise, too. Like, you know, don't often see just groups of children going around killing each other, be or killing the adults, because, I mean, we have things like Children of the Corn and stuff. But... Back then, it wasn't as common. And the dilemma comes in, you know, when you have adults who are trying to defend themselves, they can't bring themselves to kill children, well, that, particularly their own. That goes back to, that, you know, who can kill a child and stuff like that. Oh, well, yeah, that's a really good example, a much yeah. older example. But yeah. And where it's like, you know, these kids are out to kill you, but who can kill a child? I could. I could. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. No, not just walking down the street. Yeah, but I am not an situation. advocate for child murder. No. But if a kid or kids are trying to kill me, uh, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, yeah I'm not going to be like, oh, I can't bring myself to do it. No, if, it, if they're trying to kill me, then they're, you know, fucking dead. I mean, if I can help it. Yeah. I always loved the ending to this movie. Even now I look back on it and it's just like, it's kind of cheesy, you know? And really the the effects are very cheesy because all they did was paint their fingernails black. Like, and there's a lot of cheese. I mean, like you kill them by chopping their hands off. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you <laughs> shoot them or hit them over the head or whatever. And you got to chop both anything. of them off. <laughs> you have to chop their hands off, which... It makes because no all sense. the power are in their nails, I guess. Yeah, it makes no sense. But there is one very cool thing about it, and that is that the music is by Harry Manfredini. Yep. And if you watch this movie, you cannot miss it. it so it sounds like so a Friday Thirteenth movie. Yeah. <laughs> I but, mean, it's. I expect to see Jason coming out any minute. I mean, you can always tell Manfredini, yes. just like you can tell any other composer's music yeah. if you know their style. You can tell Manfredini, and he's very obvious here. But if anyone hasn't seen it, I do recommend it. I love it. We have the poster on the wall. and um, I got you the Blu-ray for did, Christmas. And I was very excited to get that. So Because now I then I could stop watching my bootleg with the hand. It, it has a hand drawn. I still own it. It has a hand drawn cover. Like that's how bootleg it is. But anyway, uh, 
Uh, kids yeah. today will never know the joy. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we both really like it, and we both gave it a four out of five. We now go to another movie called The Children. But this one's from 2008, and I'm going to say probably, well, the last movie is so old and kind of obscure, maybe some people don't know about it. This one, much more modern, but it's also very obscure, it seems like. Yeah, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it, which is a shame because it's, I mean, it's a British film. Yeah, and so maybe that's why it never hit over here. I wonder if our British listeners know about it more it was a bigger thing there. I think if, uh, for even American people, if they, you know, if they, you know, keep an eye out for things like that, they'll know about it. It's not crazy obscure, but it doesn't get talked about a lot. But it was it's part of the ghost house underground. That was like somebody else's version, version of, of the, the eight s- films yeah. to die for. And yeah. uh, while some of the other movies in there were, this one I've kept. And just because I really liked it. Yeah, this one, I was really interested in it when it came out because I, know, seeing the title, and this is mid-2000s, you know, what was happening in the mid-2000s. Okay, I'll answer. It was... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you. Uh, remakes of everything. Everyone was remaking everything. So when I saw that this movie was coming out and I saw the title, I assumed it was going to be a remake of The Children from 1980, which I loved, so I was excited about it. Well, it I guess it could be. Like, it, if it is, it's an example of a remake that takes the basic idea and which I think if you watch the two movies together, you could make that argument. I've, I didn't actually, um, I don't actually know if it's intended to be a remake or not. I don't think I've ever looked it up, but, but if you, if you were to tell me that this was a remake of that movie, I go, okay, that makes sense because whatever, it's not the same thing. We don't have a big yellow cloud of radiation. Their fingernails don't turn black. It's nothing like that, but some kind of sickness is, overtaking the children and it only affects the children and they become murderous and it includes one of my favorite things in horror and that is blood on snow i love Mm. the look of blood on snow or just red on white you know if you have uh, like say the wedding scene in alligator where everything's white and there's just blood being spattered i i just love that look and so when you have a really bloody film that takes place in the snow, I like that contrast. I like the way it looks. And this does that. Uh, These kids are vicious, but they're also really cute, too. They're cute kids. And so, and it's a a kind of an isolated, it's two families spending the Christmas together in this isolated English home. And then toward the end, you kind of get the idea that it's spread a little farther than that. Yeah. But... I love this movie so much more than the other one. The other one's good. This one is just The other one's campy. Yeah. You know, this one is... There's no kids with black nails. No. It is plausible in such... I mean, any zombie apocalypse can... Because that's what happens. There's a virus and why they don't become like brains or even rage zombies. They become zombie-like. They're... They still maintain enough of their personality so they can be all cutesy and kitty-like when they want to be and they all 
they use that to their advantage when it comes to trapping and killing the grown-ups. Yeah. But they are single-minded, and they're just, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> there are some really nasty kills yeah. in this um, that totally make it worth your time. If you've never seen it or ever even heard of it, I do highly recommend it. And especially if you, like me, love your evil kid movies, which... I think everyone knows is one of my favorite things. So yeah, you got problems. I got, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely seek this one out if you've never seen it. Yeah, we both give it a five out of five. Yeah. We now go to a bit of sci-fi, but it's dark sci-fi. And I think this was a first time watch for you. This is children of men it was i had always heard it was good but i never saw it it's from 2006 and i mean it's got some major stars this is a a major motion picture it's got clive owen julianne moore michael Caine. it's directed by <laughs> alfonso Cuaron. i probably butchered that i'm sorry but i mean he went on to direct that gravity which i really liked he also directed Roma, which was a drama from Netflix, I believe. I wasn't all that excited about it, but it won an Oscar, so good on him. So, I mean, this has some serious talent behind it. As for the story, it's an awesome end-of-the-world story, but it's in slow motion. Because, some reason, nobody knows how or why or whatever, but suddenly... Nobody can give birth to babies anymore. Like, the last child to be born on Earth is a celebrity because he was the last child born, and he's like 18 and all that. So it's been 18 years since anyone, anywhere, had a kid. And then the movie starts with that kid, he just happened to die in an accident. And like, the whole world is in mourning because he was like the world's baby. Mm -hmm. I like apocalyptic films and I really like when you can sit there and watch them go not so much I mean post-apocalyptic is fine that's more about the survivors and everybody's dirty and radiation and stuff like that while I this isn't classified as a horror film it is straight up horrifying imagine being in a world where everybody knows humanity is over that's it I mean that's no matter what in 60, 70 years, there will be no more humans on the planet because nobody can give birth. And they've tried everything. They've tried artificial insemination. They've tried, you know, in vitro. And they, try, they no matter what they do, nobody is giving birth. So the world, it's tearing itself apart. You get that idea. I'm, there's been several movies like this. There was one where, uh, hell, there was a planet getting ready to crash into Earth. And just people are losing their shit because there's no reason to be moral anymore. There's no reason to be good anymore. It's over. Yeah. I mean, all the things you told, like law? What the fuck is law? <laughs> I am the law. Exactly. I mean, it's so just this world is going ape shit. But into this world, Clive Owen gets the job of protecting a pregnant girl. And nobody knows how or why. She was just, hey, I, you know, me and my boyfriend, we were doing a thing, and this is what happened. 
but everybody wants that child, but not for the right reasons. Everybody has political reasons, or some people are like in a doomsday cult. Other people, you know, worship some whatever. Everything, everybody wants this kid for their own reasons and own plans. And yet he is desperately trying to get this woman out of, I think it takes place in England, doesn't it? He's trying to get her out of the UK to this ship full of scientists so if anybody has a chance to figure out why is she pregnant and nobody else is, it's them. But meanwhile, you get all these people after her. If she dies, there goes the world. I mean, who knows if we'll ever get another person. Isn't she... Now, I could be wrong because I've only seen it once, but... Isn't she, like, African or some, you know... She is an immigrant to the UK, and that plays as in part of the story mm -hmm. because... As the world goes down the drains, well, much like I'm going to refrain from getting political, <laughs> but people are very much against immigrants and against refugees. Even if, you know, they're trying to escape horrible, horrible stuff, people just don't care. So that plays a part in the story. Yeah. That the savior of mankind is this young uh, refugee. That initially nobody would want it and everybody wanted, you know, they'd be happy if she just dropped over dead. But she has something that could save humanity. And you know what's incredible about this film? It, it's a great story. It's a really good story. But apart from that, there's some really cool filmmaking techniques here. And like there are big long stretches oh, of yeah. single takes. Um, or even if they're not, they're designed to look that way. He does and this thing where this is the world going crazy, so it's not quite Mad Max, but it's getting there. So there's like roving gangs of gangs who, you know, ambush people on road and just take what they want. And there's a scene where he's in a car with his girl and a couple other people. They're trying to get away from a gang who just killed one of their members. And it is a beautiful shot. It's done digitally, but this is where I don't have a problem with that. Because you could only achieve this kind of filmmaking with digital effects. Because while the car is driving down the road at full speed, and all the bad guys are chasing after him, and you know, with motorcycles and whatever, the camera goes from outside the car, across the road, into the car, around showing everybody inside the car, back outside the car, and it's all apparently one take. Now, there could be some digital trickery in there to sort of sew it all together, but just, that was stunning. And there's that scene in the building, too, where they're, like, fighting their way yeah. through the building, and it's a single shot. Yes. And I've actually seen a breakdown of that where everything had to be choreographed, because this building is full of people. It's not, like, an yeah. empty building. It's, it's the middle of a war zone, you know? The UK are coming in with tanks and soldiers, and you have all these refugees. They finally took up arms, and they have occupied this building. So you got machine gun battles and a tank blasting holes through the building yeah, and, and people flying. And here you got Clive Owen trying to get this girl out of all this. Yeah, and everything had to be choreographed down to the second. I mean, it's just incredible. So another one that I highly recommend if you've never seen it for the technique alone. And then also there's a really good story and some great performances here. Yeah, this is a great movie. It is a, sci-fi action flick with, like I say, a very downer, bleak world. 
and uh, it just rocks. I highly recommend this one. In fact, we both give it a five out of five. We now come to our last one for this segment. It will be Children of the Corn from 1984. Why don't you tell us about this one? Uh, well, uh, based on a Stephen King story, I actually kind of name-checked it earlier. Didn't I didn't even realize we were going to be talking about it in this episode. But uh, it starts off in the beginning with this entire town full of children on uh, Iowa? Idaho? I don't know. Kansas, maybe? I don't know. Some, some corn state. Nebraska? Nebraska. Uh, Nebraska. Uh, yeah. And um, it's full of corn. And <laughs> the, this little town in Nebraska, all of these kids one day rise up and just slaughter all the adults. And I love the opening of this movie. It is just like, what the hell? And then they take hold of this town. Everybody knows this story and it's been memed from here to hell. Like even South Park did a version of this, you know, in the, in the before times in the long, long ago. <laughs> and then you have Peter. Pumpkin eater. Peter. Peter. Peter Parker. Peter. Griffin. Peter, from 30 something. God, I just aged the shit out of myself knowing that show. Um, Peter Horton, right? Does he hear a who? Shut up. Anyway, Peter Horton and um, fucking Terminator, Linda Hamilton. Uh, Peter Horton and Linda Hamilton are driving through, and they pass through this town, and they see a little boy. It, well, they hit something with their car, and they think they killed this little boy, so they try to go into town to see what's going on, and they can't find any adults. All they can find are these weird-ass kids. And then the kids kidnap them, and then they discover that all of these kids worship he who walks behind the rose. <laughs> it has some really cheesy effects at the end with, like, some lasers and shit, but I really like this movie. I didn't... This was a movie that I loved my whole life, and I just assumed, I think it was because it was Stephen King, I just assumed that it was really highly revered. And then in recent years, I've come to find out that it's kind of not. People talk shit about this movie. And I don't, and I don't, get, don't that. get it. I don't get it. I really enjoy it. I think it's fun. I think the characters are great. The little boy who plays Job is hilarious. And there's this great scene, and every single time I watch this movie, I have to rewind it and watch it again, where Peter Horton is running, uh, trying to... He's chasing somebody, and he just trips and eats shit. And <laughs> I don't think that it was on purpose. I totally think Peter Horton ate shit while they were <laughs> making this movie and they just kept it in the movie because it looks so realistic. But and it has characters like Malachi and Isaac. And, and like I said, everybody knows this one. But if by chance there are some people out there who have avoided it for whatever reason, don't do that. It's fun. I'm not a big fan of all the 150 sequels. No. That have come out. And as a matter of fact, I don't think we own no. any of them. <laughs> we don't. But this first one, I do really like. Yeah, it is cheesy. It is corny. Ah. <laughs> but it's fun. Uh, I do really like it. I like the idea. Well, I don't love killer kid movies like you do, but I do usually like them. And this is a good one. 
And it has that almost Lovecraftian idea playing with the whole idea of religion and, you know, things unseen. And there's this power that takes over town. It's basically the shadow over Innsmouth in Nebraska. So. <laughs> and they're, I mean, and they're a cult. Yeah. They're a straight up cult. And once you turn, I think it's 19, then I think you get so. sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. And it's all very disturbing, you know, and it's, I love that. That, you know, these adults kind of stumble into this and they're like, what the hell is going on? And they just kind of get this, they kind of have this attitude. They just want to spank everybody, you know, because <laughs> it's like, oh my God, you're, you know. But I think that the characters play off each other really well. I and I have a lot of fun with this one. Isaac and Malachi are the best. He wants you too, Malachi. Malachi. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're just awesome. So yeah, this is a really fun film. Uh, you very quotable too. Oh, very, very. Uh, you give it a five yeah. out of five. I give it a four out of five, which still means I really like it. All right. Well, I guess that will wrap up this segment of the collection, and it will also wrap up this episode. As usual, guys, thank you so much for tuning in and spending time with us. We really appreciate it, and hopefully next time my voice will be a little bit better. But who knows, maybe next time I'll catch what you have now. Uh, eh, we'll see. Uh, let's hope not. I do hope not. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you uh, have any comments or whatever you want to share, you can always hit us up on the Facebook group page or send us an email or message us through Messenger and um, we'll read it on the show. Sounds good. All right. Uh, we'll see you next time, guys. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you for visiting the House of Salmons. We hope to see you back very soon. Until then, come chat with Brian and me on our Facebook group page at Horror in the House of Salmons. And if you like what we do here and want to hear some bonus episodes, consider being a patron at patreon.com slash House of Salmons. Special thanks to Rick Morgan for composing our theme music.